Hello and welcome to this episode of the Horror Drafts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brantley Palmer, joined as always by my other co-host, Mr. Nicholas Schwartz. Nick, how are you? Uh, never better. Well, that's, you know, some bad things are happening in the world, but, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. How about you? Yeah, yeah, same here. I feel about generally the exact same. <laughs> uh, folks, you are very, very lucky today because we are joined by a wonderful guest. Uh, our guest today is a journalist, screenwriter, and podcaster who has written for Variety, The Dish Network, United Airlines, in-house writer, and James Bond Radio. He has crafted press kits for films from Amazon Studios, Sony Pictures, Bloomhouse, A24, Focus Features, Bleecker Street Films, Lionsgate, and Paramount Pictures, including the press kit for the most recent Scream film. He is the co-host of the Western Films podcast, How the West Was Cast and his produced screenplays include the films and shows Ring of Death, Grave Mistakes, The Storm, Hard Ride to Hell, and the eco-horror film Shark Swarm. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Matthew Chernov. Hello, thank you so much for having me on, guys. I really appreciate this. I love listening to your show, so it's a pleasure to be on the other side of the microphone for once. Oh, wow. You are incredibly kind and generous. We are the ones who are very <laughs> happy to have you on the show. Uh, I'm so happy to have a screenwriter on and a fellow podcaster because, you know, I, I reached out to you as a fan of your podcast, How the West Was Cast, uh, and have been a fan of that for a while now. So it uh, is a very, uh, it's quite the honor to have you on the podcast, sir. So thank you for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> so we are going to be discussing eco horror films uh this year uh, sorry this year this episode <laughs> uh a topic you chose and uh we're very excited to get into that, but before we do, uh, we always like to ease into the podcast a little bit by checking in with uh, what people have been watching, listening to, reading, otherwise enjoying and consuming, and we will start with you, our guest. Uh, Matt, what have you been enjoying lately? I just finished up um, on the Paramount Plus Network, 1883, the mm. Western series. I guess it's a prequel to... Yellowstone, which I, although I'm a Western fan, I haven't seen Yellowstone. It's on Peacock and I don't get that. But mm. um, 1883, I thought was fantastic. It really just absolutely swept me up. It's a wagon train Western. Uh, we, we're waiting to do a, an episode on our Western podcast all about the greatest wagon train films. That's such a wonderful subgenre of Westerns. And this was just a really, it's a harrowing wagon train this is a little bit of a disturbing series uh kind of at times it's borderline horror and violent but it's it's really a, a fantastic uh series from taylor sheridan i think uh, is the the genius behind it it's excellent series i uh, highly recommend 1883 oh wonderful now did he did yellowstone as well right so he's involved in both shows yeah yellowstone uh Hell and High Water, Wind River, mm -hmm. a lot of, I mean, he's, a, he's really like the, I don't know, he sort of took over for like, he's like our modern John Milius or something these days. He's that kind of thoughtful, macho filmmaker who makes these, these really gripping shows. I guess he's got a new one coming out soon with Stallone in it for Paramount Plus Network, a series, his first, mm -hmm. Stallone's first TV series, which I'm really looking forward to that one as well. Oh, interesting. Oh, I hadn't nice. heard of that. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, Nick, what about you? Um, primarily, I've. it's funny because I've been watching more movies than I think I have since my kids have been born for years. But they've mm -hmm. all been for this episode and the coming episode we're doing. So I can't really talk about any of that at this point. Um, sure. The only non... Um, 
horror drafts related thing that I, I watched was I, I caught this movie called Broadcast Signal Intrusion on Shudder, which I will admit I'd never heard of before seeing it. Um, and it's it's based, among other things, largely on the, I think it's from the, the 1980s, the Max Headroom incident, where someone really oh. actually did hijack local news. Um, and um, and it's it's it has some faults, I will say, but um, for a movie that I had never heard of, uh, I was pretty blown away like the performances are top notch um there are some like genuinely genuinely creepy chilling images that kind of stick with you um and i just find the subject matter like endlessly fascinating um it's just like because i think to this day at least i think the max headroom thing was like never officially solved like no one figured out who did it like the fcc and i imagine i think like the various federal agencies were looking into it and it was never like so I don't know. That kind of thing to me, for whatever reason, is just like really fascinating. And so um, seeing a horror movie made about it was kind of cool, combining two of my interests. And yeah, I recommend it. If you have Shudder, it's like, it's definitely worth a watch. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Um, Did they make a documentary about that same situation as well? I'm, I'm trying to remember. I don't recall. I don't know if there's a feature documentary, but I know, I, I'm pretty sure I first read about that on. Um, might have been on on Reddit on the documentaries like subreddit and like mm-hmm. there may have been like a a short piece that was you know, posted to YouTube that I saw that okay. originally got me interested. Ah, gotcha. Uh, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm going to check that out now on Shutter. Um, I have been um I also with Nick watching a lot of movies that pertain to this episode or upcoming one, which we can't talk too much about. Uh, but. I finally took so many of our guests' uh, recommendations because we have had so many people recommend the um, Hulu show The Great about Catherine the Great that I finally started watching it. And I am absolutely in love with it as well. I blew through the first season and am so excited to start the second season as well. It is a fantastic show. So I'm basically just echoing what everyone else uh, who has recommended it has also said. Uh, It was amazing and and fantastic. So uh, yes, anybody out there who is listened to our pod and heard it recommended a million times and not yet uh watched it please go so go out and do so it is fantastic we could we could honestly we could shift gears and just turn this into a great fan show if we i mean almost right yeah it's been i know i feel like we're we are not being paid by hulu not at all no it's just a really good show i'm glad you finally watched it i'm I'm really glad you're liking it even more oh yeah yeah It's, it's wonderful yeah well, that is what we've been watching lately, so let's dive into this episode. We are talking eco-horror. Now, before we get into Shark Storm, I'd love to hear from you, Matt, uh, why you ultimately picked this topic uh, and you know what your thoughts and feelings on this subgenre are and uh, what appeals to you about it. Sure. Well, I'm a little bit older than you guys, so I um, started my movie watching in the early to mid-70s. That's mm-hmm. when I was hitting the theaters as a kid in those impressionable years when you're like eight years old and your things are just like you're soaking up everything you see. And as a horror fan, I was deluged with eco-horror growing up. It it sort of like is a big part of my childhood, being afraid of things like acid rain, uh, the gas crisis, the, you know, uh, we were first starting to hear about environmental issues. I I guess the environmental movement really started in the the 60s and then became mainstream in the 70s. It became Mm -hmm. fashionable to be into uh, the environment and eco subjects. So that was everywhere. It was prevalent. And 
those films scared the hell out of me as a kid. I didn't know any better. I didn't know that some of them were cheesy and some of them weren't exactly uh, on the level, but uh, it really became an important subgenre for me growing up, and I never mm. lost my love for that. So when you suggested that I could pick a topic, out of all of the topics I picked, this was the one I, I really was hoping we would do, especially because I ended up, you know, trying my own hand at writing an eco horror film and, and having that turn out pretty, pretty well. So, mm -hmm. so this was a natural e eco horror is just, uh, I mean, they, they still make them today. It's a, it's a genre that, um, that I think still is, is very meaningful for a lot of people. And, and more than ever, it's, it's a serious topic. Um, mm -hmm. When I think back to some of the things we were scared of back in the 70s and how they didn't actually pan out, killer bees never actually arrived on our shores. That was something we were all scared of. Now the sort of existential dread that we're all experiencing on a daily basis and that we can't really bring ourselves to face full on or, or we'll just not leave our house anymore, it, mm. is, it's so great that I think... Um, this subgenre is is more important than it's ever been before. Yeah, and, and very well put. Uh, yeah, ex absolutely. And uh, you know, the, uh, along those same aspect uh, aspects of it, I, I I also love so many of these movies that just have that typical man versus nature, uh, you know, battle. One of those classic storylines. And it was actually interesting because I I had seen your film Hard Ride to Hell and I rewatched it and there's I believe a line in it where one of the characters says something to the effect of it's just nature it can't hurt you and it made me <laughs> it gave me a little chuckle knowing you had also written Shark Swarm and had a love for eco horror so uh, I I got a little very bit of a deliberate kick out of line in there that's great I'm so yeah. glad you picked up on that <laughs> yeah yeah. Well, that's wonderful. And I, I'm so excited to uh, to get into it and to do the draft. But I'd love to first talk about uh, your film Shark Swarm, which um, actually was actually kind of put out as a two part movie on the Hallmark Channel. Is that correct? Yeah, of all places for the longest killer shark movie of all time to, to air, the Hallmark Channel is not exactly the first choice that you would think, especially when <laughs> at that time, we had the sci fi channel, Spike TV, there were, there were places that it might have been a better fit for. But mm -hmm. what was happening at the time was that uh, Shark Week on Discovery was blowing up everywhere. Mm -hmm. It was becoming a real phenomenon. And all the other networks wanted to get in on that action. They wanted some shark content. So the Hallmark Channel put out the call. We want a shark movie. We want a shark miniseries. So um, my partner, my writing partner and I had just written the spec script that you mentioned, Hard Ride to Hell. Mm -hmm. And it was optioned by a TV production company, and they had a deal with Hallmark, and they were the ones tapped to put together Shark Swarm. So they liked Hard Ride to Hell so much, the script, that they turned to us one day, I will never forget that call, and we get a call saying, hey guys, how would you like to write a, a four-hour shark movie? <laughs> Which, as a, as a fan, I mean, that's like bucket list level. That is mm -hmm. dream come true, no subject would be more, I don't know, more fun to write so we immediately jumped on that and um, it was a great project to work on because they gave us carte blanche when it came to the script all they had at the time that we we joined them on the project was the title shark swarm they had copyrighted that title i guess they tested it with people and it tested very well so they just turned to us and said 
what is it about? What is Shark Swarm about? There was no log line attached. There was no mandate that we had to do anything. We, looking back at it now, I, I think of so many different other ways we could have written the story. Like with a title like that, we could have done, I, I almost regret that we never even considered doing a story about the Indianapolis, the sinking of, of that ship and, and going that route, a historic mm-hmm. Shark Swarm, instead of what we ultimately ended up with, was, which was like a real homage to 70s disaster movies and 70s eco-horror. But um, it was just an absolute blast when you get that call to, to write a, a film like this. And then as as the cast started being announced, as we started getting little emails from the producers saying, hey, uh, we're getting Daryl Hannah. Can you tweak the script again for her? Or we've just landed F. Murray Abraham. He wants his part beefed up. Can you do something with that? So what a fun experience. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. um, sort of all-encompassing. For for months, we just lived and breathed Shark Swarm because it's basically at, at a, as a two-parter, as a four-hour movie, it's like writing one massive movie or like writing two smaller ones. It's it's a, just keeping track of that number of characters on screen at any given moment and making sure you don't lose them for too long in the narrative was like a, a, a math project to try to figure out how that all fit together. It's just an absolute delight to work on. A lot of work, but super fun. Oh, wonderful. And and I know I'd, I'd heard you talking on other podcasts, but you were on set a lot of the time during the filming of that production, right? So what yeah, was that Yeah, they did like? send us out there. Um, that didn't happen too often on other projects, but this one they did send us out to the set. They shot in Northern California at Fort Bragg. Mm. And unlike shark movies now, where uh, especially these direct-to-video ones, where they do almost everything in studio and just green screen in water and mm-hmm. look so artificial and and phony this was guys on boats in the middle of the ocean with massive cameras filming action scenes on moving boats it was just like old school filmmaking it was probably the last time they really did for tv anyway one of something at this level it was a very expensive project to get off the ground directed Mm -hmm. by um jim contner who was the cinematographer on jaws 3d so he Mm -hmm. had shark experience he also shot William Friedkin's super creepy serial killer movie, Cruising, with Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. So Contner is was already a, a legend to me just from working on Cruising alone. So mm-hmm. he was he wanted his his chance to direct his own shark movie after shooting Jaws 3D and after being a cameraman on the original Jaws. This was mm-hmm. his chance to sort of plant his flag in the shark genre, and and it turned out to be an incredibly sweet man to work with just a, oh, a absolute doll oh that's great so cool uh, it's so fascinating i was wondering like not only the process which is actually really surprising i didn't realize it was like um almost like a commissioned idea that's so cool um that's like a completely unique experience i think i'm not a screenwriter but i would imagine um but uh one thing i was was it shot on film because i was struck while watching it that it it really like like you said, unlike a lot of the sci-fi movies and stuff that you're seeing on TV today, um, this one has a very cinematic look. Like you can just tell there's something tangible about like the way that it's shot. Um, not and not just the special effects. I mean, obviously, like like you said, shooting on the on the water and with real boats and stuff like that obviously adds something too. But it's even right down to the little details, like what it's actually shot on. I think made a huge difference. It was really noticeable. I think you're right. I. I, I... 
I don't actually know what it was shot on, but it has that look. Again, it was another one of those ones where I think three years after it, TV movies started changing. They started looking bad. They started looking like soap operas. Um, I think as the digital technology started getting easier and easier to use, the production values went way down. Uh, so they just kind of phoned it in at that point. So again, this was another one of those last hurrah of the big budget TV movies is right on that cusp. It happened right around the time things changed around the time of the writer's strike in the mid 2000s. The industry sort of changed. We stopped writing. My partner and I stopped writing a bunch of films after that. The, the business kind of took a weird turn. And one of those turns was things started looking like you're talking about where they don't look quite as as strong. And, and of course, Kotner was a, a genius cinematographer. He shot so many things. So if anybody was going to make um, a TV movie look like a feature, it was going to be him. He, it, But it, it does have that quality you're talking about. I'm, gl- I'm glad you picked up on that as well. Yeah, no, I was really struck by it. That was, that was um, honestly one of the coolest things about that about that movie to me was just like... There, there are things that don't work as well about it, of course. It's like some of the effects didn't really land. The... Um, the guy that they hired to do the shark, the practical sharks, where they built like three big great whites and pieces of other sharks. They looked decent in the studio, I guess, when we were staring at them. And when they walked us into the studio at one point and there were three full-size great whites just lying on a table, and you realize that they built these because you said that they needed these. That was like a trippy moment. And I thought, this is going to look fantastic. I can't wait to see these fins cutting through the water. You know, those classic images in in the Jaws movies of the fin rising up and it's a practical fin. Mm. I wanted that so badly. And the fins never worked in Shark Swarm. They didn't register on camera very well. They cut most of the practical sharks down to just a few fleeting seconds and here and there. Most of them became digital sharks, and some are better than others. Some look pretty good, but I do regret that the effects in that movie didn't quite pay off the way we had dreamed that they would. Gotcha. Yeah, no, interesting. I honestly didn't even notice. Uh, It looked, I was really, I mean, and again, maybe it's because I'm used to watching these new, like, Sharknados and stuff where, like, that's part of, well, I did not find, personally, that kind of thing appealing because I think it's, like, deliberately going for that that look which i find you know it's one thing if you if you make a movie look like that by accident and there's like some charm to it but like they tried so hard that it became not funny to me anymore um but that look is so off-putting now because it's been done on all of these movies that like i did not get that at all from this this was like so i i would not have been able to tell i thought it was like yeah very impressive good to hear did you catch the the fog reference there's a lot of references in this movie. We'll talk about some of them as we go through the draft. But there's a deliberate reference uh, at one point when the sharks attack Spivey Point, which is where I think Adrian Barbeau's kid hangs out all the time at uh, in the fog. That's where John Houseman at the beginning is telling this ghost story. It's a very f- a fictional town that Carpenter just came up with in the fog. And that movie is is there's elements of that sprinkled throughout Shark Storm as, as far as the portrait of a town um, with this terrible thing happening to it as people start mm-hmm. vanishing. So there, the Spivey Point reference is, is always a fun one for me. I was uh, glad they didn't make us cut that out. 
Oh, that's, oh I didn't even catch that. That's awesome. That's another reason I want to go <laughs> find that again. <laughs> cool. Well, and I have a question too, because, you know, writing a TV movie is very different than writing a theatrical film. You know, usually you're asked to incorporate, you know, uh, when they're going to go to an ad break and things like that. Um, did you have to deal with too much of that with this film? Or was it basically like, this is our four hour movie and that's just what they were looking for? Or did they want those breaks to be put in as well? Well, this was a new experience for us writing something like this, uh, a TV movie like this. Uh, prior to this, we had written our spec script, Hard Ride to Hell, that eventually did get made. But that was written as a feature with a no breaks or anything. It wasn't meant mm -hmm. for TV. So we had no clue about how TV movies are put together, just like you, when you're saying, like, do you put in the specific act breaks, the commercial mm -hmm. breaks? And they told us, no, just write a four-hour movie and don't worry about where they're going to cut things. Don't worry about where the first night ends, because all of that could easily change during the editing process, which it did. Um, oh. The movie actually opens with F. Murray Abraham giving a speech in front of a class. And that was, in our script, the final scene in the movie. So they moved a lot of things around. The, we opened wow. with a creepy... Uh, water and night scene with these two fishermen being attacked by sharks that was again lifted almost beat for beat from the fog when the, mm -hmm. the first the sea when the seagrass gets attacked by by uh, the ghosts it was like a ripoff of that and um or loving ripoff of that sure. and, an homage <laughs> yes exactly and the script started with that scene in the finished version that ends up somewhere in the middle of the movie they just rejiggered everything so um, I was glad that they just let us write and write and write. The The only problem with that was they wanted a, a literal 240-page script. They wanted, mm -hmm. uh, if, if, if each page equals a minute, a normal two-hour film is, of course, 120 pages, they wanted us to write the full four hours, even though that they knew with commercials it's going to get cut way, way down. They wanted more yeah. content than they could actually use, which scared us a little yes. bit because if you write tight and every scene counts and they start losing scenes, to, it's going to cause a ripple effect. So luckily it wasn't yeah. too bad, but um, it, was, it was a concern. But yeah, we didn't have to write to commercials or anything. Oh, wonderful. And do you think they wanted that full 240-page script just, again, to give them more options in the editing and, like, what they can take out and move around and that sort of thing? Definitely. I think okay. I think it's that. I think they were also, um, not to throw anybody into the bus, but I think they were also sort of used to, especially this production company, getting scripts that weren't the, the cream of the crop. So they oh. needed as much as they could get and find, and they would find the movie later on. Oh, Unfortunately, with us every scene kind of counted. They didn't tell us you can just pad it out. And it became a, 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 a little bit of a, of a dance to try to figure out how they were going to put the whole thing together. But we ended up being incredibly happy with the finished result. It never hit, it never is the exact thing you want it to be, but it was pretty damn close. And, and even when it doesn't work, who cares? It's, it's this wild, weird TV shark movie. I mean, you, you gotta love it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. What was uh, what was it like, you know, meeting and working with some of the cast on the film? I, I'd love to hear any stories you have about, you know, uh, Daryl Hannah or F. Murray Abraham or, you know, anyone involved. Right. Um, the, my favorite person to deal with was John Schneider from Dukes oh. of Hazard. He mm -hmm. was our, our hero, our stalwart hero who um, you know, was a, a noble fisherman. He's right out of uh, 
I think we kind of based him on George Clooney and the perfect storm. He's that kind mm. of a guy, the guy you want, you know, you can trustworthy guy. Awesome dude. Uh, just personable, complimentary, working with the whole crew, hanging out with everybody. The exact, a, a big dude too. The exact mm. kind of guy you would want one of the Duke boys to be. I mean, he was just like, it was, it was such a treat to, to meet him. Um, Daryl Hannah, I was thrilled to have her in the movie. She had just come off Kill Bill, and it mm. was like a big get to have her in there. We even, uh, I looked her up after she was cast and realized that she was an avid surfer. So oh. we suggested that we could write a bunch of surfing scenes to add to the movie and show off her, her chops on the waves. She nixed all of that right away. She said, I'm not doing any surfing in this movie. Suddenly, we started hearing that there were other things she wasn't crazy about doing. Um, when we finally met her on the set, she was a little, you know, distant. But, I mean, she's a movie star, so you can't fault her for that. And I think maybe she felt that the material wasn't up to her standards. Maybe Kill Bill went to her head or something. And she, she, she was amused to be there but not may, maybe thrilled to be there. Um, so it was a little disappointing there. But other guys were great. Um, I never actually met F. Murray. I wish I had, although I saw some videos of him that they shot, like behind-the-scenes footage that they put together for an EPK. And to hear him talk about, to hear this Oscar winner talk about, he loves this character because he he's the professor you always wanted to be. He's the, mm -hmm. I mean, it was like, I almost started crying hearing F. Murray Abraham say these things about my work. It was awesome. Um, and the other guy that was a, a fascinating person was Armand Desante, mm. who is our big bad villain. Mm. And um, he was a character. And I've loved Armand for years. Um, in fact, one of his movies might be coming up earlier yeah, later yeah. today. And um, <laughs> he's just, he's the bomb. I, I love him in movies. And he was so quirky. They told us at one point, the producers took us aside and said, maybe don't hang out so much with Armand Asante because he's going to start hitting you guys up for rewrites on his dialogue. He's got his own take on this character and he might start pressuring you into like, hey, how would you feel about doing it this way? Or, And they said, we don't want to do that. We want with scripts locked. So um, we, we kind of had to ghost Armand a little bit just so that we didn't get in trouble with anybody. But... I mean, that guy is so suave. He's just so yeah. freaking cool. I mean, if he's in Judge Dredd. He's like the best. <laughs> you got to mm. love him. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and I loved hearing uh, how kind F. Mary Abraham was in the behind the scenes videos. I have like gotten this like, you know, in the past couple of years, like this real adoration for F. Murray Abraham, because I don't know what it was growing up. I mean, obviously Salieri and I think in uh, the name of the Rose and everything. And just thinking of him as this like, serious like kind of you know real actors actor scarface but then, he's, he's scarface yeah but then but then i like re-watching things and i'm like oh he's in surviving the game and like he right. does all these like fun like you know schlocky things and then like in mythic quest on apple tv i don't know if either of you watched that he plays this old kooky sci-fi writer and it looks like he is having 
the best time of his life and so i've just become like so enamored with f murray abraham and just like love his whole vibe so it's wonderful to hear that he was so complimentary uh, about like the role and, and loved uh, playing that character that's that's fantastic uh, i feel exactly the way you do he's just a cool guy um he was doing a few films at the time for this production company he also did mm-hmm. one i think he's in this um thing called blood monkey yeah <laughs> i think I, he has I a small that. role in that and they produce blood monkey as well so i uh, i was kind of mad when i mean not to be too greedy but i would have killed to write a movie called blood monkey <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like, like uh but sharks Run's next best thing so uh, yeah, yeah f murray to see him on uh, to, to hear him on those videos talk about about the role was just like the best I, I should have saved them eventually those epks got taken down wherever they were and now they're oh. lost in time but what a what an honor that was to hear that guy um, but yeah. you're, you're right he's like his career is sort of like michael kane there's those huge important dramas and it's well-respected things and then he does some wacky jobs for hire and treats them equally as seriously and never phones it in mm-hmm. and just like is part of the fun so so you know kudos exactly. to f murray Oh, that's wonderful. That's oh, that's great. great. I, I loved it. Um, yeah, I'm actually... Boy. I don't want to... Sorry. No, 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 no. Apparently. Please, no, no. Go ahead. I, I'm just... I'm actually curious. Um, well, uh, two things, actually. Um, now that I know that the, the script was kind of, like, brought to you... I mean, the idea was brought to you. Um, in terms of the eco-horror elements, like, um, and that storyline, was that you know, like, because you were interested in that, you brought that to the... Or was that simply just a means of, like, we need a way to get this explained um so this is a means to an end or was that because you really wanted to work that in there it's a little bit of both um it's um you know like i said we could have gone any direction and pitched them on anything i think we thought that certain avenues would have been a problem for them like maybe doing like the indianapolis or something like that it's it's not a it's not what they were looking for i got that vibe so um as far as the eco element goes originally we pitched them a treatment set in Hawaii called, um, it was called Shark Storm, of course, but it was set in Hawaii and it was centered around an earthquake. We, we didn't want to go eco at first. We, we, we thought it had been done too often. So we were, my partner and I were thinking like, let's, you know, break all the rules instead of uh, toxic waste or whatever. It's an earthquake uh, uncovers an underground a vein of, of some type of electromagnetic rock or something, some kind of massive uh, magnetic rock underneath the ocean. And it starts screwing with the shark's sonar, and, and pretty soon they're seeing people as fish and they're attacking everybody. It was going to be this whole other take on it. Mainly we did it in Hawaii because we thought maybe if we write it in Hawaii, they'll shoot in Hawaii. <laughs> and they quickly told us, are you guys out of your mind? <laughs> like, even if we wanted to set it in Hawaii, we'll just shoot it here. We're not sending you to Hawaii for a vacation. So that was next. And um, I remember we went into the first production meeting and the, almost the first note they gave us was, the earthquake stuff is interesting, but what if it was like toxic waste? And we wow. said, sold, brilliant. <laughs> Let's do toxic waste. We were not going to rock that boat at all. So um, they actually suggested the toxic waste thing, which was fun because then suddenly we know, okay, we're going full on eco. We're going to 
Mm-hmm. We're, we're hitting all the, the notes that we always love where there's an, you know, a crusading environmentalist. There's the big, bad, greedy tycoon. There's, you know, the, the town, the, the mayor of the town who can't hold it all together and is selling people out left and right. It went that direction wholeheartedly. But, but yeah, mm-hmm. it, that was something that they suggested just because I think it was so tried and true. Yeah, mm. that's super cool. That and the other element that really like I think spoke to me, which I I found really interesting is is the pressure campaign to get people to sell. Just because yeah. I mean that has so we're in New Hampshire where there's terrible cell service, and when I was growing up, um, they were trying to build cell towers everywhere to increase, and it was a big money maker for companies. And and like we lived in areas of New Hampshire where entire communities were being pressured to just it, it would just take one house. You just got to clear one house so they can put a big ugly cell tower up. And um and it was kind of the opposite in the movie where instead of uh, being pressured to sell, um, there was a lot of pressure, um, like on my parents and other people not to sell because of how ugly this thing was going to be and how terrible it would be for the community. Um, but anyway, like that town hall meeting really was like. Like word for word, I'm just like this seems so familiar. Wow, that was so a great cool. scene. I th- I think that scene really came off well. John Schneider mm-hmm. delivers in it. He's got this great rapport with um, Armand. You can see they're they're both trying to make plead their case. I, I think I was we were influenced in that scene by um some of those uh, town hall scenes. In do you do you ever see that Stephen King miniseries Storm of the Century? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. You know, when they're all debating at the end, what do we do? Do we do we give in and and give him one of our kids or not? And it becomes like uh, this debate about who these people really are and what they're what they're going to stand for. So we were inspired by that scene. That I think that was so well done. There's also a a classic Steve McQueen film called uh, I think it's called enemy of the people or man of the people I'm, i forget the name and it's almost it's i think it's a, based on a stage play and it's about the one holdout mcqueen who won't give in to this pressure from his town and he becomes a pariah because of that because he sticks to his guns so we were that was something that we worked into that that town hall scene in particular and and plus the whole idea of people being forced to or, or like being encouraged to sell off their stuff so that they could vanish it was a convenient way for us to have characters suddenly get eaten off screen and then nobody notices because everybody's clearing out anyway it, it, it sort of covers for the missing people and i think some people didn't notice that because some of the nastier reviews we got especially on imdb and things people would say no 12 people just died and nobody noticed and that's because everybody's vanishing because they're already like up and moving and drive, and we see them driving away it's in certain uh transition shots so right. yeah, that was part of it oh yeah that makes sense yeah definitely um yeah. well honestly being pressured to sell just reminds me of like the housing market right now that we're in yes you know honestly like True. so many people are you know selling just because the market is so wild right now so that was just on another side of the pressured to sell uh that it made me think of <laughs> yeah that's a great point yes yeah yeah well, wonderful. I mean, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for giving us kind of the rundown and the insight into the movie Shark Swarm, uh, your eco-horror film. Uh, but we have you on the podcast today to draft eco-horror films. Now, we rolled our four-sided die before we began and determined our order. Uh, I will begin the draft. It will then go to Nick, and then our guest, uh, Matt, will draft third. But he gets the back-to-back and gets to draft first in the second round. Uh 
Mr. Chernov is also the commissioner of this draft. So he will have the final say about any of our choices. And we will have to plead our case whether a film is or is not eco-horror in case he decides to wield his hammer and with iron fist and say no. So uh, we're very much looking forward uh, to I, this. I do have specific qualifications for what constitutes eco-horror. So I'll just warn you that. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll be very lenient. Um, I, I'll <laughs> listen to any cases as they're, as you plead them, but uh, I do have a, you know, I'm an expert at this. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, Excellent. no, wonderful. Would you, do you want to, do you want to jive in and tell us yeah, what, what that is now ask. before we begin? Well, or is it better I to feel like or? for true eco-horror has to have some type of underlying environmental message beyond just uh, radiation, beyond just, uh, you know, uh, toxic something. There has to be, a, it has to be addressed somewhere in there. The presence of environmentalists help a lot. The presence mm. of um, hot-button issues that are talked about outside of horror, where that becomes something. Um, so, you know, is Jaws an eco-horror film? I would listen to an interest, like a, a sort of a, provocative argument that it is personally i'm not seeing jaws as an eco horror film it's a different kind of movie that, that shark doesn't come because of any environmental reason he's just mm. it's bad luck you know this town happened to be on the receiving end of a of a great white so it doesn't they didn't add that little extra element unless somebody can point it out to me in which case i'll i'll go with it but so yeah so we'll, animal attack movies on their own you know is cujo and uh, eco horror i'm not sure about that but um you know yeah we'll, we'll have to see how what people come up with i was i was very strict okay. to myself okay cool all okay. right well I, boy now i now i hope I some, feel of some my pressure picks are gonna fly <laughs> yes <Yeah>, same here <laughs> well all right so to start us off uh with the first pick in the first round uh I, i'm happy i get to go first i have no idea where this film would appear on on any, either of your lists but my favorite eco-horror film uh, is a film I discovered within the past few years. Uh, I now own the 4K that was put out by Vinegar Syndrome, and it involves what I find to be the most terrifying of creatures, and that is ticks. And it is the movie Ticks from, I believe it's 91, with Alfonso Ribeiro, Carlton from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and Seth Green, uh, in which a, a, a large amount of ticks are... Um, uh mutated by i believe they refer to it as an herbal steroid that uh clint howard is using to grow his marijuana in the backwoods uh you know of uh, in the film and um and they become these terrifyingly large like ridiculous uh size ticks um i have been we live in the northeast and and the tick season just keeps getting worse and worse and worse actually because of climate change. Like this past uh, winter, it didn't get cold enough to free freeze enough and kill them. So it has been brutal actually the past two years, um, the tick population. I don't know what it's like for you uh, where you are, Nick, but it's bad over here for us. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and I have been bit by ticks before. I've had Lyme disease and it is no fun. Uh, so that is why it is number one uh, for me, uh, the movie Ticks. But I should check with our commissioner to make sure that that is a valid choice. Hundred percent. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm disappointed in myself that I didn't actually think of ticks. Yeah, excellent choice. Um, awesome practical effects in that movie. Oh, Just wonderful. like super gooey 
It's one of those yeah. like drive-in kind of classic. It has that feel of like an homage to the classic drive-in movies. A very, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just great. It's it's they don't over rely on CGI, so you get actors are covered in goop. Um, it, great stuff, awesome choice. Uh, Tony Randall directed it, and he's done. Um, I mean, he's a old hand with horror with Hellraiser two, I think. Um, mm-hmm. is another guy who who's kind of reminds me of Anthony Hickox in a way. Uh, very dependable by-the-book horror director. Yes, absolutely. And one of those, I think, hidden gems of the early 90s that people forget about, you know, because people, th- so many people act like the 90s horror like was horrible until Scream landed in 96. But I think, you know, this is just one of those like wonderful gems of that era that is just fantastic. And yes, the practical effects in it are amazing and, and one of my favorite parts of it. Plus, like you, uh, plus, like you said, they're they're nasty to begin with. I mean, when you're, mm-hmm. you know, there, it's not like Night of the Lepus or something where they're a bunch of rabbits or something cute like that. <laughs> These are already like nature's monster. They just happen to be super tiny, uh, so they're already so horrific. Just just the title alone has that, you know, is enough to give you the the heebie-jeebies. So good choice, excellent cast. Clint Howard, like you mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. another. I mean, he doesn't get enough credit, I think, for his horror work, whether it's the stuff that he does with Rob Zombie or or um, uh, Evil Speak, going back to Evil Speak. He's just uh, the ice cream man. I think he's mm. in that, too. Just uh, another, he's like a, up there with Brad Dourif is just not as well celebrated, I think. But he's great in ticks. Yes, absolutely. Uh, all right, Nick, you are on the board with the second selection here in the first round. All right. Um so my first choice is actually a movie that I just saw for the first time in, in prep for this podcast. It was one that I'd, I'd been on the fence about. Um, I, initially, I think when it came out, I, I'd read, maybe it was just one bad review that turned me off, and it was like just happened to be the first review I read, and, and uh, mm-hmm. so I, I kind of just ticked it off my list, and I'm so glad I revisited it. Um, it is um, Barry Levinson's The Bay, um, oh. which it, I was just, I was really blown away by... Um, it, like any movie, maybe has some faults, uh, this kind of genre, in the horror genre in general, like at the end, um, there are some things that I, I would I would maybe perhaps have done differently. However, up until that point, it was easily one of the most tense, you know, like 70 minutes that I'd ever seen. Um, it was just deeply uncomfortable the whole time. There's just, this, it's just a feeling of dread that builds like nothing else, and... Um, and part of that, I think, is because it's a fa- it's done as a found footage film, which I think is, um, you know, sort of a, a filmmaking technique or a subgenre or whatever you want to call it that gets a bad rap when I think it's used to save money um, as a cost cutting measure. Um, you know, then it's it's gimmicky and and I and it can be real bad. But if it's used in service of the story, and I think it very much is in this film, um, it 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 can be. I think really a game changer. Like I don't think this movie would have been nearly as effective um, uh, if it was done any other way. Um, so, and I, th- I I suspect that that subject, found footage, may or may not come up in our next episode. So I don't want to say too much more about found footage in general. Um, however, um, yeah, uh, I, just again, I was I was so surprised by this movie that I'd kind of like ticked off my list for for a decade. Um, and like it's just it's a movie I cannot wait to revisit. I was just definitely 
definitely the most uh, intense film that I've seen in the last few years. It made me, made me very uncomfortable. Fantastic choice. Uh, it was one that if nobody else picked that, that was definitely going on my, my list. Um, it, I was so glad that when they did it as a found footage subject that they didn't just do you know, a family with a camcorder on vacation and stuff happens and we're just following this this one camera shot through the whole thing. That, if anything, turns me off about the found footage genre. It's that. I get bored with that long opening where they have to establish why these things are being photographed and the yeah. horror doesn't really happen until 30 minutes in if you're lucky. Um, here, it's structured as a, a finished documentary. So exactly. we're getting points of view from all over the place. The horror starts from the very beginning. It's um, it's so much more intense that way. It feels like um, it feel if it sort of reminds me of the early days of the pandemic, the early lockdown feeling yeah, when yeah. you're glued to the news and you're mm. doom scrolling twenty four seven, and you start your mind starts playing tricks like how bad is this going to get? Well, the bay gets pretty bad. <laughs> it shows yes, it like, some really horrible stuff going on, and um, it has that feeling of. Like enveloping paranoia as as this stuff starts getting worse and worse. So I see why you kept using the word intense to describe it. Yeah, yeah perfectly. Couldn't think of a better word, honestly. That word doesn't do it justice. Um, on the side, how, I will we, say how also weird that, like, to come from uh, Barry Levinson of all people. That's I, such... Exactly. It made me look up Barry. Le like I, I had to look him up again just to um, revisit his filmography. And I mean, it's huge and varied, and it's. Surprising because there were so many movies on that list where I was like, just I, I kept scrolling his IMDb. Being like, oh man, like Barry Levinson did that, like just movies that I would never have associated with him. So, um, and this was yeah, uh, very surprising that he that he, he very does. few horror films from that guy. I think the closest he came was maybe maybe the Michael Crichton adaptation Sphere, which has a few. I mean, it's a yeah, really yeah. lousy movie, but it has has a few horror elements to it, but. For some reason, I kept getting his movies mixed up with Robert Zemeckis. I guess they kind of mm. work together at times. So I, th I thought, like, was Barry Levinson involved in Tales from the Crypt and all that stuff? But it wasn't. He was he had did other TV stuff. But uh, yeah, this, so this was a, a rare horror film from from Levinson. And and who knew he had it in him? Who knew he had a found footage film in him? I mean, that That's seems like such thing. a younger a younger director's game and, and yep. it turns out he knows exactly how to scare you with a found footage film. It was so rare. I think you just nailed it. That's the thing I think with um, the budgetary constraints filmmakers, you know, will fall back on found footage as a way of getting a feature made or something. Um, so to see a name like Barry Levinson um, like, you know, towards the, well, I don't want to say towards the end of his career because I don't know exactly, but like more recently, um, with a huge filmography under his belt, tackle something like that. Um, and that makes all the difference, honestly. I think that's, again, and, and you hit the nail on the head. The movie Lake Mungo has a similar vibe where it's like a completed documentary. Um, again, one of my, and uh, there was a British TV movie, um, Ghost Watch, um, which is done as like a news broadcast. Those things are so real uh, when done correctly that, like, honestly, that's where the line between reality and, and horror is blurred for me whereas like i mean and blair witch did it too but they did it more with their marketing you know like that was a genius turn for marketing so i will be forever a staunch defendant of found footage if done well mm -hmm. i think it's a brilliant tool um and yeah i think barry levinson really took it to a to a real high level on the bay
Glad you mentioned Lake Mungo. A couple of years ago, Variety had me rank, because uh, I write horror lists for them all the time. They had me rank the top 10 found footage horror films. I think the new Blair Witch, the, the most recent one, was just coming out, so they coincided with that. And Lake Mungo was my number one choice. Nice. Oh, yeah, um, yes. Cannibal Holocaust right next to it as two, <laughs> but um, for very different reasons. But Lake Mungo, it's another one, like you said, a completed documentary. And because of that, it feels so much more disturbing, I think, than just yeah. that long, you know, you are, or those things where you're just sort of tagging along for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrifying movie. One of my favorites. Anyway, nice. I've talked for a long time, so sorry. No, no, no problem. Matt, you are on the board here with the fir your first pick of the first round, and then you will get the back-to-back -back with the first pick of the second Ooh, round. Ooh, cool. Okay, so my first choice is a sentimental favorite. It is one of my favorite movies because of when I saw it in 79, and it is Prophecy by John Frankenheimer. Ah, nice. Um which stars Armand Asante from Shark Swarm. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of my favorites. Uh, written by David Seltzer, who wrote the original Omen uh, a few years before this. It stars Talia Shire, who had just finished Rocky II at the time, so she was, you know, pretty hot then. Uh, Armand, Richard Dysart from Carpenter's The Thing. Awesome cast. Mm. It's about... I don't know if anybody's seen Prophecy, but it's about a small town, I think it's in Maine, where uh, pollution is causing some mutations around for the local wildlife. And mm. it happens to, to wreak havoc with the DNA of a giant bear that was roaming around there. And pretty soon you've got, you know, the Jason Voorhees of bears killing people. He's like <laughs> melted, his face is melted off. Yeah. John Frankenheimer wasn't a director like he's like Barry Levins. He wasn't known for horror. He was known for, you know, acclaimed movies like The Manchurian Candidate, Birdman of Alcatraz. He's like a well-respected, uh, serious dramatic director. So to have him make a wild, gory, eco-horror movie where people are getting their literally getting their heads pulled off and there are mutant babies running around and raccoon attacks was just. Uh, an absolute pleasure. Prophecy, I saw it at, a, I think, the age of maybe 11. So that thing just wiped me out when I realized there was a practical monster running around the woods. There's a great um, sleeping bag kill in it that, that the Friday movies ended up ripping off years later in, in New Blood. I mean, Prophecy did it first. Uh, it's, it's just yeah. a, a fantastic movie. A lot of fun. A little silly, but... Yeah, you know, it's hard to argue with a movie whose tagline was the monster movie. It's right on the posters. It's a prophecy, <laughs> the monster movie. It, and that's that was such an ominous thing to see as a kid on the poster. It, in fact, it was such a cool tagline that years later, when American Werewolf in London came out, they stole the monster movie line on the poster for American Werewolf. It says American Werewolf in London, the monster movie. But prophecy is the monster movie as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. I, I love awesome. the the practical uh, bear effects that they have on it. It is just so like fun and a little silly, but like so like wonderful in that way. And I believe it's like paper mill pollution specifically, right? right? Like the waste from it. Yeah, it's mercury okay. runoff from the that they use to sort of preserve the logs that they use to turn it into paper. You don't see a lot of paper okay. mill villains in movies, so that was, usually yeah, it's well, just oil companies. So it's kind of nice yeah. that they they branched out a little bit. And um, 
Yeah, it, yeah. it's photographed so beautifully. Um, I think Harry Stradling is the cinematographer, and he had shot like The Way We Were and the classic Western Little Big Man. So you get these constant mm. use of split diopter shots in it, uh, widescreen cinemascope photography, gorgeous nature photography. That's one of the things mm -hmm. that's people don't give eco-horror, especially from the 70s, enough credit for the nature photography in these movies when they're done well. It's breathtaking. You see parts, I mean, there's just like vast expanses of, of gorgeous terrain around the country and you, and you kind of soak it up. It's, it's just an awesome feeling. Oh yeah. Wonderful pick. I gotta admit, uh, I have not seen the prophecy. I keep, I saw it on lists this whole week and I was like, I gotta see it. And I realized the reason I haven't seen it, I think is because I've been confusing it with the Christopher Walken series, the prophecy. <laughs> um, yeah. So it seems like that series really did this one a disservice. Yeah. Well, and it's it's been years since I've seen it, but I remember specifically that it was a paper mill because growing up in rural Vermont and New Hampshire, you see all these old like mills that are still on the, the rivers and everything. And so I think that just like stuck with me because I'm just so used to seeing like these old mills and things like that. Well, well but, Nick, you yeah. should definitely check it out. I think it's on, it might be on Amazon Prime for just free or something. It's on a lot of different services, so you don't have to pay anything. And it's just... Um, I mean, it's like a, a classic drive in, 70s drive-in movie. It's it, surprisingly rated PG for considering there's beheadings and things in it. It's, the old PG, for the pre-Indiana Jones PG. <laughs> Nothing fact, like it. I, I saw it as a kid, so I didn't know what the word prophecy meant when I saw it. I hadn't really heard that used a lot around the playground. So I thought... Is that the name of the monster? Is the monster called Prophecy? <laughs> so when we would when we would play or like run around or scare each other in the woods, we'd be like, Prophecy's gonna get ya. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh well, Matt, you are now up with the first pick of the second round. So we're gonna stay in the seventies. And I am going for my second pick with Day of the Animals from nineteen seventy seven. Directed by William Girdler, the director of The Manitou and Grizzly, who is a real hot ticket in the horror genre in the 70s. In fact, I love William Girdler so much that in Shark Swarm, F. Murray Abraham's character is Professor William Girdler. <laughs> so that was a specific homage to the classic eco-horror. Uh, I don't think even Wonderful. F. Murray knew that. Uh, the cast of Day of the Animals is awesome. Christopher George from Grizzly and from Fulci's City of the Living Dead. He co-stars with his wife, Linda J. George. You've got Leslie Nielsen running around as a psycho villain. Uh, Andrew Stevens from De Palma's The Fury is in there. And from the, I think he was in that Morgan Fairchild slasher movie, The Seduction, too. Um, great cast, character actors. A lot of these 70s eco-horror movies had just like, Tons of awesome character actors filling their their ranks. It's um it's about the, a moment when the animals in this forest decide to attack hikers because of the problems with the ozone layer that's been created through constant use of aerosol sprays. <clears throat> the ozone stuff. I remember growing up thinking that was like going to kill everyone. The ozone layer was described as like Swiss cheese when I was a kid, and and it was just a matter of time before cosmic rays killed everybody. So I was scared of that growing up. And seeing Day of the Animals, I just thought we are we are screwed. If I I, I don't know if uh, mountain lions 
automatically start attacking people if the ozone layer gets screwed with, but um, it was scary enough to, to, to give you some nightmares. What's great about this film too is that it has a ton of animals in it. We don't just get one like you do in certain animal attack movies. We get bears, vultures, snakes, mountain lions, wolves. It's just this massive you know, army of animals trying to kill this group of hikers. And eventually the problems that are affecting the animals start affecting the people too. So Leslie Nielsen starts going batshit crazy and killing people. It's, it's just a real fun cautionary tale that's played incredibly straight, very seriously played, which is, which is another awesome thing about 70s eco. They weren't winking at people. Uh, so Day of the Animals, I think, again, you can find that in a lot of streaming services and definitely one to, to look out for. That's awesome. Oh, awesome. That's another one to put on my yeah, list. Yeah, great pick. Yeah, I have not seen that either, so that's wonderful. That's awesome. Fantastic, uh, fantastic score by Lalo Schifrin um, that sort of echoes Jerry Goldsmith's Planet of the Apes score. It's not a traditional horror score. It's very like counterintuitive and full of this percussion, and it feels primitive in a way. It's capturing the, that this sort of back-to-nature vibe. So Lalo Schifrin, everyone knows from you know a million... Mission Impossible movies and TV shows and stuff, but his score for Day of the Animals is very underrated. Oh, awesome. This is great. Very cool. I love coming away from these podcasts with a list of of new things to look forward to. Yes. Um, (laughs) It just adds to the daunting list of films we have to watch, not just in preparation (laughs) for new episodes, but then on the recommendations of so many of our guests. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, Nick? You are up now with your second round pick. All right. Um, another more recent one. I'm embarrassed to do two recent ones in, in a row, but um, going for my heart, Brantley, uh, as we as we do. Um, mm-hmm. I am going to go with um, Larry Fessenden's The Last Winter, um, which uh, another one I just saw recently. Um, I've been a pretty big fan of Larry Fessenden for a while and, and glass eye picks and, and both as an actor and a, and a director um, and, and what he's done for independent film in general, but you know, largely independent um, horror, especially um, uh, he's done. Uh, he's done a bunch of really good um, horror on his own. And he's certainly appeared in a lot of really good horror, but uh, this is one that he directed Um and uh, suffers from the same sort of thing where I think that the last act falls apart a little bit, but everything up until that point is so strong that it more than makes up for it. Um, this is a great setting, great location. The performances across the board are really, really, really solid, strong, um, and uh, and creepy. And uh, the ego element is kind of like front and center, um, which is um, which is cool. I think it, it actually. I was reading that it got some flack actually for just like how maybe heavy handed the eco message is, which mm-hmm. I say, you know, if you're making a movie that's like an allegory for something and the point is to be subtle, then sure being heavy handed, but like this is the eco part is central to the plot of the movie. So I don't think you can be too heavy handed. And I don't think that that's what it suffers from at all. Um, I think it suffers from maybe showing a little bit too much in the end, but um, really solid movie. Ron Perlman stars in it. Um, and he's obviously great. Uh, and yeah, Larry Fessenden, uh, I just, he's a, he's a name that I don't think gets enough recognition in horror. Um, I know he, he purposely stays in indie films, but, um, I think he should be 
uh, way more recognized. He's a he's a great filmmaker. So nice. I have not seen this film. I, I I'm not aware of it. You got to get on it. Thing. It's a good one. It's um, this was like a quantum leap forward for Larry Fessenden at the time, who was really a lo-fi filmmaker for years. Mm-hmm. His mm-hmm. early work, like Wendigo and um, <clears throat> Habit, are have mm-hmm. a, a rough quality to them, like a real do-it-yourself indie lo-fi vibe to them, which works in the in those films and makes them feel extra grungy, like early Abel Ferrar or something. And here. Mm-hmm. This looks like a movie movie. He yeah, said it was like a big leap forward in terms of technique. Uh, it's a beautiful looking movie. It's shot in Iceland and it looks, I mean, he uses the terrain really well. It's sort of a, a vibe, uh, a variation on The Thing in a way. I think The it Thing. felt so much like The Thing. Yeah, yeah, The Thing looms large over a lot of eco horror, even though it's not really an eco horror film in of itself. Mm. That setting, isolation in the snowy things, there's a lot of eco horror that took place in in snowy environments and and the last winter definitely has that so so it's a big step forward for, for larry and also it's one of the rare eco horror movies that's less scientific based and more metaphysical based that's a good point it's not um pollution it's or it is but in a roundabout way the actual threat is you don't see a lot of supernatural eco horror films they're usually totally opposite this blends right. that yeah. in a very effective way. Um, but I, I feel like you did, Nick, too, where you said that it kind of does fall apart at the end. You have to give it that. It's uh, Whether they should have even included visualizing the creatures at all, I'm not sure. Maybe it would have paid off if they had didn't go that route. I, I admire any filmmaker who tries to put a monster on screen. More power to you. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt every time. I'll suspend my disbelief just because I, I, I think that's a, a, you know more people should make monster movies some shots of them look pretty pretty awesome here a couple of them other ones less so so mm, yep. you know it, it does it does have that but um you know it, it also has uh, a really potent indigenous element to it which a yes, lot of yes. eco horror films do um a prophecy that i mentioned it, it's basically native americans versus you know uh, lumber companies so a lot of these films deal with indigenous peoples and and last winter definitely does in a very effective way yeah it's a really good point um and i i think you uh, totally nailed it i i wish i could have verbalized it as well as you did with um showing um the creature which is a problem that i have with it that most movies um if i fault a monster movie it's because they've they've shown too much um showing a little bit is okay if they do it well but it's really the suggestion of the monster nine times out of ten and it's the scariest thing and i think last winter is a perfect example of this because um i agree with you like there are some shots of the creatures that look very cool but seeing them has like totally takes away what i found so scared there's a scene and he shoots himself in the foot because there's a scene earlier in the movie um where you're watching back a videotape from a character's perspective and he's outside talking about how he could, do you see them? Do you see them? Is like literally the dialogue. Do you see them? But you can't see them in the videotape. There's nothing to see. And it's terrifying the whole time. I was like, no, I don't see them. What are we, you know, like what that makes it so scary. What are them? Are they, you know, is it a ghost? Is it a monster? I have no idea. Um, and then at the very tail end of that videotape, sorry, spoilers, you, you see like a quick quick flash, like a few frames of what might be the creature. And I was like, even then, like that could have been enough to really carry the film. Um, but to kind of just like put all your cards on the table at the end and show them, I agree. Uh, ballsy move um, for sure. And I, I give them credit for, for doing that. But I, I think ultimately in this movie, 
it, it kind of it really just took away from what was a really powerful scary uh, concept up until that point in some ways what's scarier well not in some ways in almost always what's scarier than the monsters in this film is that image that he returns to over and over again of that lone white box standing in the middle yeah. of a tundra and and what that box is covering is a, a uh, years and years and years ago um, uh, I guess a, a drilling site had gone way way down there so it's covering that one spot and you realize like it's like a haunted house in a single box that's just yeah. sitting in the middle of nowhere uh, and and that box alone is more chilling than any antlered creature he can throw at us. Um, so so that know, is true. I think maybe that would have been um, the, the way to go, but we'll never. They know do either. hint at that. They're kind of like there's like a lot of um, sort of background chatter about. I mean that box is mentioned very um, explicitly in the beginning um, as like a central part of of what the movie is going to be about. But then when they come back to it later on you start to get the impression that the reason that that was like so quickly abandoned was because of something that they may or may not have found down there. And that's alluded to without actually saying outright, yeah, they found this and they quickly shut it up. And so when they return to those shots of the box, you're, it's like, yeah, totally chilling. Um, I was really impressed. I like Larry Fessenden and I've seen some of his other movies. Um, Wendigo was one of them that I, um, another one that I felt like kind of fell apart, but uh, really enjoyed the atmosphere of, um, and uh, and this one I was very surprised by just excellent movie. Like I, I would rate it very highly. I would recommend it to anyone for sure. Um, I definitely don't want to like turn people off of it just because of like, the last few minutes or whatever. It's it's worth it. Definitely very it adult out. performances too. We get older actors. Connie Britton is the woman in yeah. it. James Lagros from oh. Drugstore Cowboy. It's not teenagers mm. running around. It's not. It, these are adults with actual jobs that that we see them do their jobs so it and larry fessenden that's not a surprise coming from him he's a very like and that's that's the world he wants to depict on screen he's he's yeah so i, I can't say enough about it awesome choice oh, thank you oh excellent Brantley. yeah that's that's top of my list now to to check out the last winter awesome uh okay so uh for my second round pick uh, I am going to go with uh, one of my favorite shark films, uh, Deep Blue Sea. Uh, it shows uh, the horrors that can happen when we decide to begin experimenting on animals in order to cure uh, our own uh, ailments, and in this case I believe it is Alzheimer's, uh, that they're experimenting on the sharks with, and it turns them into these incredibly intelligent uh, sharks who can uh, now do things sharks couldn't do, like swim backwards and, and things like that. Uh, it has um, fantastic uh, performances and uh, surprises. I, you know, th this podcast is full of spoilers, but I don't want to say anything about uh, a certain performance in this movie and a surprise that happens for anybody in case they have not seen Deep Blue Sea. Um, but it is uh, a whole lot of fun, and that's one of the reasons that it is uh, at the top, near the top of my list, just because it is such a fun. Uh, and enjoyable uh, shark movie. Uh, so Deep Blue Sea is my second round selection. Definitely an nice. eco film. I, I have no no problem with that whatsoever. Most shark movies aren't. Okay. Um, but this one definitely this one definitely is. <laughs> and what a fun movie! I mean, Rennie Harlan. It's yeah. it's a shame we don't get Rennie Harlan movies like we used to. I know. They were coming yeah. out Fast and Furious for a while, and we were getting a lot of them. It was like you didn't know how good you had it. 
when he was making <laughs> blockbusters. So that was, yeah. a, that was a fun one. And it's also, again, it's another one of these eco-horror films that are full of an awesome cast. It's not just one yes. lead. You get an ensemble. Uh, all of these, mm-hmm. A lot of these films are ensemble pieces full of, of familiar faces. And Deep Blue Sea has that in spades. We get a ton of awesome characters from LL Cool J to... Uh, uh, you know Sam Jackson, and you know there's there's a whole bunch of people in this movie, and, and they're all they're all awesome. The, yeah. I, I am so jealous of the shark effects that they got in this <laughs> compared to what we got in Sharks Room. I mean, their practical shark effects look uncannily realistic at times. They, you watch some of those scenes, and you're like, "What am I looking at here? Is this a combination of real sharks or mechanical sharks?" Or it's it's just a, a, an awesomely visualized movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's great. And speaking of those like fin coming out of the water scenes, I think when when the structure they're on is like started to flood, and LL Cool J is like hiding up on trying to climb up on like the shelves. You see some of those great like shots of the fin coming up as it's you know coming down a hallway and swimming in there. And yeah, it's wonderful. And Tom Jane, Tom Jane's one of the other big actors in it as oh, well. Right. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. So long since yep. I saw that. So what are they doing in that? Is it it's Alzheimer's, right? They're trying to cure yes. Alzheimer's. So they're experimenting. Yes, I, I, on I, 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 I'm blanking on the name of the actress, but um, the, the 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 main woman actress there, she is the scientist, and her father had Alzheimer's, and that's kind of revealed a little bit later in the film once they find out that the reason these sharks are capable of doing all this is because of the experimentation that she had been doing. Um, but there's also so there's this manipulation of the sharks within the film but there's also like the subtle manipulation that she uses over Thomas Jane's character for instance he has a criminal record so like one of the reasons that like you know she basically manipulates him into being in the job is because she can lord over the fact that he has this criminal record and you know wouldn't be able to work in this type of line of work elsewhere and that sort of thing as well um and um I believe they had to change the ending to where she is killed because test audiences did not like the fact that she originally survived uh, at the end of it, just based on so many of her actions in the, in the film. Um, So they did these reshoots where um, she kind of sacrifices herself, so to speak. And I think her line is something like come to mommy or something like that while she jumps into the water. Yeah, she's sort of the Dr. Being... Frankenstein of the movie. So you, exactly, she has to pay the yeah. price. Otherwise, if yeah. there's no comeuppance there, it kind of leaves maybe people feeling like a little cheated. Like, Yes, I was just going to say, like, destroyed by her own creation, so to speak, in that sort of vein of Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah, absolutely. Have um, uh, Has anyone, like, yeah. I know they did two recent sequels, which, like, two very late arriving sequels. Oh, um, oh so, yeah, I was going to ask if anyone's seen them. I have not, surprise. Um I'm just no. curious what they're about. Like, yeah, I think they both came out within the last couple of years, and I'm just curious, like, do they have anything to do with the original Deep Blue Sea, or are they just name-only sequels, which I'm guessing they most likely are? Um, but I'd be curious. I yeah. would not be above watching them. I, I have to revisit the first one because I really enjoyed that when it came out. Um, mm. And, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know if I see two and three. Okay. <laughs> uh all right wonderful so i have the back-to-back here and uh get the first pick of the third round and i'm gonna take a film that i watched very recently uh nick it was on our friend the five day rentals podcast Mm. uh and this is a schlocky schlocky horror film produced by roger corman called humanoids from the deep Mm -hmm. 
which I okay, so it's it's sad I don't remember exactly because I watched it so recently. But I believe that they were there's some sort of I think pollution that affected like the salmon, but then that that like morphed the salmon people into these like humanoid sort of like creatures. Uh, it's a little convoluted in terms of how these creatures end up coming from the deep. I think it's a canning um, factory of some type, like a salmon canning I, factory. Yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> something to that effect. Um, but it is just it's so schlocky and so fun and a little ridiculous and tie in tying in again to uh uh indigenous members of the community uh uh you know where there's a a member who's uh, present and is really fighting against actually that 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 canning factory that a lot of the white people are very much in favor of because of the jobs it will bring um and uh it's just it's just fun again like you know but You've you've heard the podcast, Matt. You know my motto is draft from the heart. So I'm I'm picking a lot of these just fun kind of ones that I have a get a kick out of. And this was one that I got a real kick out of, and uh, and thought was just a blast to watch. Classic eco schlock. I love it. I, yes, I saw it. Yes. I saw it about two months ago at Quentin Tarantino's movie theater here in L.A. He owns a theater called oh, the oh, New yeah. Beverly yeah. Cinema. New Beverly. Mm-hmm. And oh. he showed a, a double feature of Humanoids from the Deep and oh. And a movie called Lords of the Deep, another Roger Corman underwater movie from a few years later. Not nearly as good as Humanoids. Um, So they showed it in 35mm, a beautiful print of this movie, of Humanoids. Um, Just a super fun movie, for the exact reasons you said. Where Day of the Animals had Christopher George in the lead role, this one has the great Doug McClure in in the lead role, who in the 70s and early 80s was like, the barrel-chested lead actor that that you wanted in in a movie like this always delivered the goods. Uh, directed by a woman, Barbara Peters, who I guess was yeah. a little pissed off when Corman recut the film and yeah. inserted yeah. some kind of gratuitous rape scenes throughout it that that are pretty nasty, but yeah. they're also yeah. like hardly serious. I mean, they're just like you know. Uh, big boobs ladies falling around the ground while uh, stuntmen jump on her in monster costumes. It's, it's hardly, uh, you know, irreversible or something, but it's, yeah. Um, yeah. I think she took issue with that. Uh, Absolutely. But, but yeah. fun monsters, I think created by Rob Botin, perhaps. I think oh, he did his early, I don't early work with um, Botin. And when I saw it at the Bev, you should have heard the gasp that came up when the opening, during the opening credits, James Horner's name was mentioned as the score by. It was an audible, like we couldn't believe that we were about to see a movie where Horner wrote the music to it. And it's fantastic. He wrote it like it's Mm -hmm. a big budget studio movie, not a Corman movie. So Humanoids really holds up. And it also has, of course, a killer final shot that brings the house down every time it plays. A sudden surprise that, that we won't spoil unless you haven't seen it, but... The final image yeah. of this movie will send you out with a big smile. Yeah. Oh, I'm so jealous you got to see it at the New Beverly on a print and everything. That, uh, I, I, you know, not having been to L.A. in, like, I don't know how long. It's it's like a dream to be able to go back and, and to see some shows at the New Beverly. So that's like a bucket list type of thing. So I'm very jealous. I do it. you got to do it. Wonderful. Uh, Nick. Your third round selection, sir. Sure. Yes, uh, I am going to pick the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, um, and I'm curious: does this one count? Uh, and I go to Matt on this. 
because it is atomic testing. So, you know, it's been a long time since I saw that. That was a staple of my youth growing up. That uh, those Harry Housing effects were, were, were so know, good, still magical. But I haven't seen it in a long time, so I'm going to defer to you, and I'm going to say, you know what? I trust you 100. <laughs> percent But tell me, tell me why? Like, what, where do we? We need at least one radiation movie in this thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. Um, I so I actually just recently saw the first Godzilla um, for the first time, uh, and just as a little background, like my understanding of what Godzilla was about up until this point was that you know nuclear testing created him. Um, Whereas it's really like nuclear testing kind of awakened him. He was there. He is now made of radiation largely because of the testing, but he was like always there, um, which I think the remake did kind of play with as well. Um, and that's kind of the case here. Um, it's not that it's... Um, he's not even really like a radioactive or like altered monster. So I guess in that case, maybe it's a little bit like Jaws, but he is... A dinosaur that has been awakened by atomic testing um and so it's the same messaging um i guess the argument the argument that it's it's about playing with the environment really falls into how much you would argue that testing atomic bombs at all is you know affecting i clearly it affects the environment but if that's that's as much like kind of human intervention as this movie has um so um yeah I could see how it would be like on the fence I just I think it totally uh, counts. Uh, oh, thanks. It's hard to find eco horror pre seventies. There aren't a lot of like mainly because like I said earlier the environmental movement didn't really start kicking in till mid sixties and it started getting on everyone's radar. So before that I mean they were just spraying DDT everywhere and you know it was like you know whatever they weren't the most environmentally conscious society back then so a movie like this I think would hit people like that it, I think the the audience that saw it originally would definitely register it as an eco horror film so because it would be eco for them I think we should count Oh well, I appreciate that. That that helps a lot because because my. It's also just is awesome. Short. It's also just a fantastic movie. Like we were saying, so, it's I mean, so there good. are some sequences in this that are poetic in in how brilliant they are. There, the those nighttime. I mean, everyone loves the silhouette that comes up of the creature in the lighthouse. It's just, I mean, those yep. are, that's up there with King Kong level. It is the the effects hold up so, and I can say the same thing about Godzilla the original. The effects really do like. I was blown away watching the original Godzilla. Like I knew what to expect, but and I knew the effects people talk about as as whole, but I I still didn't believe how well those effects still play. Um, and the Harryhausen effects in uh, Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms are really remarkable. Like the whole climax takes place in a theme park, and just the mix of like what looks like really good stop motion, um, practical like fire and models and whatever he did to achieve that is great so as, as a as a giant monster movie it's fantastic it's nice and short it's 70 minutes so there's no excuse not to check it out um and what i really really found i don't know if it's something i liked about it or or just found really interesting but um i mean godzilla is the same movie the the japanese the original japanese godzilla is exactly the same movie like beat for beat story like it's the same exact thing um and 
it came out a year later. Now, I'm not saying Godzilla ripped this off. What I am saying is that because it has the exact same plot, which is that nuclear testing has awakened a monster, what I find really fascinating about this whole thing is that Hollywood made Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. It's about nuclear testing waking up a monster. Japan then a year later makes a movie about nuclear testing awakening a monster. And then America buys the rights to release Godzilla in America and they reshoot it to take out all of the nuclear <laughs> like testing parts. Um, and so I haven't actually seen Godzilla King of the Monsters, the original um, like American release of, of Godzilla. I only saw the Japanese version, but that's my understanding is that they reshot a lot of stuff and they removed all of that, presumably because that would be a touchy subject um, not long after World War II. But it, I, I find it so interesting that Japan could do it and the U.S. had already done it a year later. Like, I, that was, or a year earlier, I'm sorry. That was a big takeaway for me, was, and especially because I watched it in that order. I saw Godzilla, and then I shortly thereafter watched Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And um, I'm curious to know the, the background of that story about why Hollywood was fine to do it one year and then really standoffish later on. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know the background on that. I could... I suppose I could ask my girlfriend. She, uh, we've been together for maybe 22 years or something. So we're an old couple together. And her dad it was Henry G. Saperstein, who produced several of the American Godzilla movies in the 70s. He produced Monster Zero, um, War of the Gargantuas, uh, several other, the uh, Ghidra, the 300 monster, I think that was one of the ones too, Invasion of Astro Monster. So all of those start off with Henry G. Saperstein Presents. That's her dad. And um, so Godzilla sort of runs in the family here in, in our household. <laughs> we're we're dyed-in-the-wool Godzilla freaks. I mean, so I, nice. she's, she's practically like the daughter of Godzilla as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> maybe I'll have to ask her if she knows what the background was on why they would do it for an American audience and then sort of butcher the Japanese version and put this whole other take together. Maybe she, she can shed some light on that. Oh, that's incredible. I would love to know the answer if you find out. <laughs> Excellent pick. Uh, Matt, you are up with your third round pick and then you're back to back with the first pick of the fourth round. Okay. Well, we've done underwater. We've done the woods plenty we've done underwater with deep blue sea so now i'm going into the air with 1979's nightwing another 70s wow. eco horror film uh, this was directed by arthur hiller who was again not known for horror he was known for movies like love story and silver streak with gene wilder and richard pryor he was a studio director who ended up in 1979 making a weird little killer bat movie uh, with David Warner as as the quint of the movie. I mean, he's David Warner is one of the greatest character actors there ever is, ever was. And um, to see him give a monologue halfway through the movie about why he despises bats and why they have to be eradicated from the earth, it's a showstopper. It's just like the movie just pauses for three minutes and lets him sell the hell out of this speech. And it's about a small town in New Mexico that is um, oil deposits have been discovered in the surrounding caves in this small community, right on the edge of a reservation. And, mm. and the oil company starts blasting the caves with dynamite to free up the oil. And what that accidentally does is release a uh, 
swarm of killer bats that are infected with bubonic plague. So suddenly people are being attacked by bats and they don't know. It's, it's Jaws all over again where, you know, the town mm. wants to keep it quiet and nobody knows what's happening and they have to call in the expert. Uh, and it's it's just such a fun movie. It's got um, effects by Carlo Rambaldi, who did E.T. Mm. and several e. other creatures. Yes, the werewolves and Silver Bullet. He was always kind yep. of a kooky effects guy he wasn't really on the level of the greats he's no stan winston but he he tried so carlo rimbaldi in the 80s was was pretty cool uh you've got david warner like i said you've got struther martin from a million different westerns and this film has a western vibe it's heavy with native american imagery it's um so it's another indigenous people's eco horror film Uh, it's got a score by henry mancini who's do, doing like a horror score instead of one of those Pink Panther style scores that he usually did. So if you haven't seen Nightwing, not the greatest movie in the world, but I think it's the greatest bat movie in the world. There aren't that many oh, awesome bat movies. You've got Lou Diamond Phillips bats from the nineties. I think mm-hmm. that's kind of a schlocky sci-fi style movie. There was another dystopian movie called soul survivors that had a bunch of people trapped underground with bats but this is probably the the jaws of the bat the bat subgenre, and the attack scenes are really well done. It takes its time to get going; it's a little slow at first. But once the bats start eating up um, uh, a bunch of people, it's just it's hard to beat Nightwing for for uh, bat action. Oh, that's awesome! Pick. Yeah, great. I, I actually have not seen it. I've heard of it. Like, its its reputation sort of uh, precedes itself. And so it's it's on my list to watch. I think uh, I listened to um, the Kill by Kill podcast, I think, did one recently on it. And so that got me really interested in checking it out. So uh, I'm, I'm going to have to put that towards the top of my list now. Definitely. I, I highly recommend it. The, it's one of those ones, too, that ends with a disclaimer at the end that it's like a little bit of news about... The, how the the bats are actually attack like the danger that we we have to be warned about so i always love it when eco horror movies put that text up at the end it's so creepy it's like you know this is a real thing happening somewhere even though it's probably all nonsense or there weren't swarms of killer bats it when i saw that as a kid i was like oh my god we are screwed we're going to be killed by killer bees and killer bats this is i'm be lucky if i make it to uh, 15 <laughs> well wonderful pick uh you have the back-to-back sir with the first pick of the fourth round okay so i am going with an unusual choice i think one that doesn't often get talked about is an eco horror film but it's one of my favorite movies again in the 70s and i'm talking about 1976's king kong the dino dino de Laurentiis nice. movie um this was a major film for me growing up it was uh, i think i was eight when i saw it the Bicentennial was in full swing in 1976. That was a, a fun time. I think Dazed and Confused, that's set in 76 during the Bicentennial. So when King Kong arrived, the remake of the classic 1933 movie, all I expected was a great monster movie. And it delivered that for me. But it, I didn't realize that it was also a massive eco-horror film in that Jeff Bridges is an ecologist who sneaks aboard an oil tanker that's heading out into the Indian Ocean to exploit an, uh, a secret island and to take all their oil. And instead, they find this giant ape. 
So they take him back instead because there's no, no oil on the island. And then when they bring Kong out to show him off to the world, as they bring him out in public in New York, they drape him in a giant gasoline pump. So he comes out, he's literally the commodity that they went to exploit. And he's just, he belongs to the Petrox oil company at that point. So this is a real eco subtext going on throughout this entire thing. And it, um, I think it works like gangbusters. I know people think the monkey suit is a little silly, but Rick Baker, I think, just brought a lot of humanity to the role of Kong. You can see so much life behind the eyes, his eyes. He plays the ape as well under the suit that he built. Jeff Bridges is great. Uh, Jessica Lange is absolutely ravishing. She's like just on fire in her first screen role. Charles Grodin is hilarious. So King Kong is a is a sentimental favorite for me. I, I've the original movie is the one that I often credit for getting me into the genre to begin with. I saw it maybe at five years old, and I just thought it was magical. So I've the the thirty three film is was um, a big moment for me a landmark for me and the 76 is the sentimental you know nostalgic favorite i, I just think oh plus there's john barry's score which is as good if not better than his bond scores and i and as a bond podcaster that's high praise his king kong score is magnificent oh wonderful great pick gosh i i remember seeing that when i was younger because I, I really love the original King Kong as well. That's like a big one for me. Not to tip my hand, Nick, for some of our, one of our next Please, podcasts yeah, yeah. or anything. <laughs> uh, um, you maybe have a guess at what it is since we've been talking so much about one of our next episodes. But I remember watching like the some of the the follow-up Kong films after that because I liked it so much. And, and I do remember uh, really loving the I actually, well, I mean, I was a kid, but I really loved the suit uh, at the time for King Kong, and and I was a I was a huge Rick Baker. He was like my number one like special effects guy, especially when I was at that age, really getting into like how do they do all of this stuff in the movies and how do they make that magic happen? Uh, he was like my number one. And then, you know, getting to know some of the other guys like Kevin Yeager's your Tom Savini's like those types of guys. So uh, wonderful, wonderful pick. Awesome. I got to see Rick Baker speak about the film at the American Cinematheque here a few years ago. They did an anniversary screening and Baker was there along with um, Martha De Laurentiis, Dino's wife, Dino De Laurentiis mm, produced the film mm-hmm. Uh, the cinematographer was there. I forget his name. Um, several of the cast members, and seeing that film, it was a. They didn't show it in thirty-five. They showed like a, a beautiful DCP of it. It's if you've only seen King Kong seventy-six on TV, you haven't really seen the movie. It's it's like a big budget movie that puts it all on the screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Gillerman, who directed it, also did The Towering Inferno a few years before that. So he was a big canvas movie maker. And Kong 76 mm-hmm. is a big canvas movie. So I'm, I'm glad you, you have an appreciation for this one, too. Not not everybody does. Yeah. And I think, uh, so this is just a little fun fact side tangent. But uh, so I'm the researcher for the With Gorley and Russ podcast. And uh, in The Running Man, they reuse shots from the 1976 King Kong of when the helicopters are like firing at um, uh, King Kong. They reuse that in The Running Man in the scenes where they're trying to frame um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character for, you know, fired shooting and killing all those yeah. people. Yeah, firing on the crowd. So they reuse shots from the 76 totally uh, King it's Kong. A, 
at nighttime. There are these dark helicopters. They were blowing Kong away. I mean, I remember yeah. bawling my eyes out as a kid in this one. It's it's Dino was was smart when he said, you know, when Jaws die, nobody cry. When monkey die, mm. everybody gonna cry. That was his famous quote. And boy, did yeah. I. I mean, those final moments where Jessica Lang comes up and touches Kong and he accidentally knocks him off the building. It is hard to watch. Yeah. And it ends on such a downer note, which a lot of eco mm -hmm. horror, especially in the 70s, does. A lot of them, mm -hmm. these movies don't wrap up very well. A lot of them, if if anybody survives, they usually tag it at the end where the thread is still out there. But a lot of times the people end up dying in the films. They're, they're, they don't have a lot of happy endings in this subgenre. So uh, Kong definitely has that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nick, you're up, sir, with your fourth round selection. Okay. Um, this is another. This one is is another stretch. I, I don't I don't know how I even feel about this one, but um, well, uh, I'm just gonna uh, say it. Um, my next pick is 28 Days Later. Um. And I will. Oh. My argument is, and and this is, I think it depends on how, if do you define globalization as, you know, an ecological threat. And the reason that I pick Twenty Eight Days Later, is because it was the first time I remember watching a movie, and I'm not gonna call it a zombie movie because whatever, whatever arguments you want to make about running zombies or if it's a virus versus people actually coming back from the doesn't matter. The thing that scares me about Twenty Eight Days Later, apart from like the you know how terrible humanity can be to humanity um, is how quickly a virus can spread internationally in a globalized world, which we saw two years ago during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And now 28 days later means like a whole new thing to me. Like, I think I already knew, I always knew that was an element of 28 days later. Um, but like rewatching it, you realize like, I mean, 28 days, I mean, this guy and, and the entire world is devastated by a virus that has, spread that quickly um so i don't know if that's an ecological thing matt I, I i defer to you but that's so yeah definitely when you said globalization i think that's a that's a, the key right there and and boy was that eerie seeing that actually happen for real seeing those empty city streets i remember some of those early pandemic images everybody i mean we all know those images of rome and london completely deserted these these iconic tourist spots that are constantly packed where you can your shoulder to shoulder people with people just ghost towns and i mean if that didn't bring back 28 days later for people when they saw that i, I don't know i guess you didn't see the movie but yeah it definitely is very prescient that yeah. way and i think um again looking back on it in a post-covid world um where was I going with this? I totally forgot what I was going to say. I had a good train of thought here. Um, it'll come back to me. Sorry. Um, anyway, I know it's it's maybe not... Like, the ecological horror of it is not um, really front and center in that movie. Again, it's not really about that. But that was what was scary about the movie to me. And um, Oh, here, I remember. Um, again, in a post-COVID world... It was the sense that, like, and I think this is what's really part of the eco-horror in eco-horror movies, is that it, there's a sense of nature fighting back against humanity. And I remember in the early days of COVID, there was all the reports of, like, how, you know, 
the pollution levels in LA were like hitting, you know, the lowest levels ever. And there was just this sense that like COVID is like, I'm sorry to put it this bluntly. And it's like, you know, obviously it's a horrible, horrible thing that's killed untold number of people, but you got a sense that it was like nature fighting back against something that was destroying the planet, which is humans. Um, I mean, that's the vibe of the last winter. It's it's the planet itself deciding, yeah, we're done with all of this. You guys had your shot. And, and 28 Days Later has that same chilling vibe to it, that same thing like that this is a an overcorrection, but a correction. It's Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And plus, yeah, plus I think the, I think the kids at the beginning who let the monkeys out are sort of, you know, do-it-yourself environmentalists, aren't they? Trying to, they're like oh, yeah. protesters of some type. I'm not sure what organization they're with, whether it's like a, a anti-vivisection group or something. Oh, but God, they sort so of long. are responsible for the for the what all goes wrong. Yes. Oh man, it's been so long since yeah. I've actually seen the film. I just remember the feeling of it. Um, but. Wow. Yeah, I think you're right. So, I I totally even forgot that there was the animal to human Trans, yeah. transfer of the virus, which actually kind of brings in a whole other eco eco aspect to it that I had totally forgotten about. Actually, because um, I I saw it in the theaters when it first came out. Um, actually, in L.A., that was like a, I, I was there uh, in high school, and uh, I was you know there visiting um, family and. And I, I don't think I've seen it since. And I totally spaced on that entire aspect of it. So Yeah, it's funny. It's not like oh, one wow. of my favorite movies. I haven't seen it. I haven't revisited it in a long time. And I saw the sequel and really enjoyed it. Never saw, never revisited that either. Um, and that was part of what I think was missing in the sequel. Was like it, it, The sequel is a very tense, thrilling movie. I think it's well-crafted and well-done. But um, a lot of that sort of underlying stuff that I think Danny Boyle really touched upon very well is, is missing. Um Still, mm. still a really great movie. I, I, I loved Twenty Eight Weeks Later. Um, I hope someday there will be a third one. I know he's talked about it, but, um, in terms of like eco horror and like that sort of messaging resonating with me, like Twenty Eight Days Later really did. And I don't think I could put my finger on it at the time. Um, that what was frightening me was that like, a something like this could sweep across the world and just wipe us out <laughs> that quickly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. is terrifying. I mean. Obviously, the fact that they're like zombies and they're eating each other makes it's just another element of like what is scary about it. But whatever, you know, COVID didn't turn us into zombies, but it swept across the world so quickly and it was really frightening. Yeah, it's, it's, no, it's a superb movie. It's um, yeah, it, it was so influential, too. I mean, just the way Night of the Living Dead kind of started a whole new trend or Dawn did, too this really reinvigorated the zombie genre. I mean, I remember the trailers early on saying, um, Dan in text jumping off the screen, Danny Boyle reinvents zombie horror. And that meant a lot to me because it was sort of a moribund subgenre. We weren't getting a lot of, this is all pre walking dead. We weren't getting a, they hadn't, you know, they, they were sort of tired, villains in movies they they've been done to death because it was so easy just to have a bunch of dopes running around with you know stuff on their face like to make low budget <laughs> movies this was a, a new version of that it really upped the ante a lot mm-hmm. so the for, for its influential nature alone i think this deserves a spot here awesome well yeah. thanks great pick uh okay <clears throat> i am up with my fourth round selection and then um the back-to-back with the first round of the fifth i'm gonna make a case right now to the commissioner 
for this next <laughs> film. And this is not so much about what humans did to cause these creatures to become uh, a threat to our characters, but more humans playing God by entering into the territory of these creatures and then bringing them to other parts of the world where they do not belong. And this movie is arachnophobia. Uh, I believe they are in South America in the beginning when they go and they uh, spray the tree with their chemicals to get all these different, you know, plant life to die and fall off. And the things that don't die are these very, very dangerous spiders that then hitch a ride back to America uh, with them and terrorize the uh, farmhouse of uh, Jeff Daniels and his family. Um, so I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it forth before our commissioner. Does that count? 100%. Okay. And for that very reason. Sometimes all it takes is that the opening scene, whatever the cause is, and then they can just become a killer spider movie after that. But that <laughs> opening thing is important. I mean, those they're going there with the best of intentions, trying to capture stuff to study. Isn't it Julian Sands is in charge yes. of the, the expedition or something? And so, so, yeah, I can see that 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 works perfectly for that. And, and and we haven't had a spider movie on the show. Closest we came was Ticks. So, you know, yeah. let, let's bring it on. I, I, good choice. Okay. Perfect. Yes. Uh, this is. You know, you, you, you're touching on a lot of 70s films that are of that, you know, that time that you were growing up, you know, 90s films, I think for Nick and I are that sweet spot for when we were growing up. So like ticks and arachnophobia and arachnophobia really being one of those sort of kinder trauma horror films that like, you know, you watch when you're a little bit younger because it's not like super scary and horrific, but as a kid, it is scary and, and terrifying and, um, you know, I don't like spiders. I don't uh, hate them as much as my wife does. I will try to let them survive if I can. <laughs> if they're in the garage, I'll shoo them out to the outside. But, you know, if they're in the house and, you know, or I, sometimes I go to the smack and kill rather than to save. Yeah. So I'm not the best in that regard, I will <laughs> say. We've talked a bit on this podcast about how neither of us are big fans of spiders, Nick. <laughs> Have um, we? I'm not surprised. And then I think one up. showed up in your podcast. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this is also, it's just, it's so fun. And, you know, you have John Candy and that little supporting role as the exterminator who is having John Goodman. I'm so sorry. You're right. I said John, John Candy. You're right. It is John Goodman. Thank you so much for jumping in and correcting me. Um, uh, coming in and, 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 you know, in that supporting role and it, it is just, it's fun and it's, um, you know, growing up in small towns myself, you you get that that small town vibe that I love so much in 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 movies. Um, we get it a lot in Stephen King films and and other like other New England small town set movies. But uh, this really kind of touches upon that as well, which has a little sweet spot for me uh, as well. So that is that is my fourth round selection. It has that Spielberg quality to it. I guess he produced it, so it has that like yeah. The family unit is really important in this film, and and the portrait of the town. Mm-hmm is a, uh, that's one of the other great things about these eco films like i tried to do that in shark swarm as well where you sort of get to know the the citizens a little bit and then you can yeah. go back to them at times and kill them off and have little <laughs> like dick miller has a a cool scene in here and so we get those yeah. things you set everybody up and then you knock them all down so yeah we we borrowed a page or two from arachnophobia for shark swarm <laughs> nice nice uh yeah yeah that is my uh that is my fourth round pick um, I'll go right into my fifth round pick. Um, 
Let me take a look here. Okay. Uh, okay. I am going to go with... Um, I'm going to go with Piranha for my fifth round pick here. Uh, military experimentation, I believe, uh, that causes um, these piranhas to become extra deadly, super terrifying piranhas. And then what I actually really like about this is that the plucky journalist that is... Uh, no, I'm sorry. Um, she's not a journalist. She's a... a, a, a a tracer service she's trying to find people who uh, a skip tracer um and she's there investigating trying to find this uh person and she actually is the one who causes the piranhas to be released so it's her own meddling it as much as just the military doing this meddling it's it's this outside intruder coming in to this town that they don't know as much about and it has like um uh drains the 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 tank that they are in that releases them into the the river to then um terrify the uh terrorize excuse me the the town um so it has like that kind of dual element to it um but even despite that like i I never disliked her. She was still like my favorite character in it because she is just so um, plucky and determined. Um, so yeah, Piranha for me is my is my fifth round selection. And considered the one of the best Jaws ripoffs there is. It just uh, you know it it gets singled out a lot, and yeah. and it's easy to see why with a script by John Sayles. It has a knowing quality to it, and yet it's not too winky or ironic. It it brings the scares when it needs to, but it's very clever in other ways. Um, another one filled with cool supporting characters like Paul Bartel from Eating Raul, the director of, uh, what did he direct? Uh, Death Race 2000. He's, Bartel is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Bradford Dillman, I think is the hero in it. Um, yeah, Piranhas is awesome. Just, uh, you know, a good audience movie to see too. I, I've seen that at the, at the Bev and, um, <laughs> it's one of the best, a great, a great cameo by, I think Corman's in that one as well. Yeah, good choice. Thank you. Uh, Nick, your fifth round selection, sir. Uh, yeah, so uh, my choice is one that I haven't seen in a while, so I, I, I don't 100% remember if it's eco-horror. I think it is, but um, Bong Joon-ho's The Host. Um, it's about the pollution of the Han River, right? I mean, that's what causes the whole thing. Okay. Um, yeah, like I said, it's been a while since I saw it, but it, just a great movie. I saw several times when it, I think it was playing in Keene when we were actually attending school there, Brantley. So I think I saw it at the Colonial oh, nice. Theater a few times. Um, oh, cool. You know, it's just, it's good. It's, 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 uh, way to digital, I think, right? The effects are good. Um, story's good. The acting is good. The, um, it's funny. It's scary. Uh, the creature design is is really really well handled and um, and I think more than that it's a, it's a nice segue against spoiler alert for our next episode so um, yeah there we go <laughs> yeah there was a lot of crossover there really is these, these two. <laughs> I'm yeah, finding yeah. yeah the host yeah. is there's a reason why that movie broke out the way it did it crossed you know it, it crossed audiences people who don't normally like horror fell in love with that movie because the characters are so lovable and likable. You really root for them. It's direct. I mean, it's directed beautifully. It just yeah. pulls you along. It's paced just perfectly. Yeah. The, the host is, is a movie that people watch over and over and over again. It's one of those ones where you're scrolling through the channel guide. And if it happens to be there, you stop on the host for a while because it's just, uh, you know, it, it's instantly gripping. 
Yeah, uh, great movie. Yeah, it's another one I'm I'm gonna add to my list to revisit. It's been too long. Yeah. Uh, all right, Matt, you can bring us home here with the final pick of the eco horror draft. On the fence about two. I'm looking at two right here. Um, as always, yeah, going, yeah, with, with I always the final go with round. Sentimental favorites. This is all. This show is about sentiment for me. So I'm gonna go with one mm. that gets a lot of derision from people but i happen to think it's a special movie and that's 1977's orca nice which is a very cool movie if you haven't seen orca uh, directed by michael anderson who the year before this directed logan's run sci-fi classic uh, stars richard mm. harris who is another one of those guys like f murray and michael Caine, did a lot of classic films and a lot of schlock and gave it a hundred percent no matter which one he was in and it's arguable which one Orca is. I think it's closer to... It falls somewhere in the middle anyway. And Richard Harris is yeah. fantastic in it. Charlotte Rampling's in it as well. Bo Derek in her first role uh, several years before she blew up in Blake Edwards' 10. Uh, and it's got um, Will Sampson, another Native American actor who was the Indian in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was also had a similar role oh, yeah. in Poltergeist 2 to what he has in Orca. He's like the mystic of the movie and you know mm. provides a lot of the um, Native American mysticism or a, maybe in this movie it's just mumbo jumbo. I don't know. It sounds like spooky atmosphere. So Will Sampson is very cool presence. Uh, again, produced by Dino De Laurentiis right after King Kong. So he was on a monster role for a little while. Um, brilliant score by Ennio Morricone like a haunting score mm. where you're this isn't an action movie score it's like a deeply sensitive poetic score about this weird surreal battle between a fisherman and a whale this this is another metaphysical film more more so than mm. a scientific thing that nobody experimented on the whale to make him decide to seek vengeance on this town and this fisherman it's you have to go beyond that. This is a, a very poetic movie about nature deciding that it's you know, had enough of, of being hunted all the time. So it fights back. Mm. And the, it, as the movie develops, it gets more and more surreal where we move away from this very realistic fishing village. To, by the end, we're on this like phantasmagorical ice flow in the middle of the, the Arctic. And it takes on a dreamlike quality that that I find really powerful. The the mm. actual scene of what sets the whale off on this uh, quest for vengeance is absolutely terrifying. When I saw it in '77, it was so disturbing. Richard Harris harpoons a whale, pulls him up on the the deck of his ship, and unfortunately, it was a pregnant whale, and it, the whale dies, and it's its offspring spills out in this horrific image of it splashing on the on the deck of the ship and the hero whale sees this happen and locks eyes with Richard Harris and at that point it becomes you know literal man versus nature and that scene mm. is is burned into my memory that that whale abortion that takes place on the middle of the ship is just harrowing very it feels mm. very realistic when it happens so so orca it's a film that people goof on when Bo Derek gets her leg bitten off and, you know, it seems a little goofy, but, but it, it really, um, it's a movie I can't get out of my head. So it's, it's one of my favorites. 
Nice. Oh, yeah. Great pick. Wonderful. And a great way to take us home there at the end of the draft. Um, that's one I feel like I want to revisit because I, I, I remember watching that a, lo- a long time ago and and having a lot of fun with it, but but now feeling like, oh, I should I should rewatch this. And I have to say, just say, like, throughout this entire draft, I have had such a great time just listening to you discuss 100% these films. Agreed. Matt, you have this, uh, you have this, like, such a, like, a encyclopedic, academic, like, knowledge of these movies, and you are bringing just, like, so much to this conversation. I, I edit them, and I listen to myself, and I'm just like, you are a blithering idiot every time <laughs> I hear myself. That but, way. you know... Oh, well, that's very kind of you. Uh, but I have to say, yeah, it is just, um, you are just so knowledgeable and it is so wonderful to, to have you on and, and discussing these movies because, yeah, you're just bringing so much amazing information to it that I it's been a, a real treat to listen to you. Same. This was, uh, you guys hit almost every movie that I was, was my backup. So I'm glad that nobody that's picked these. Like, okay. I would have been screwed at that point. Oh, wonderful. Well, speaking of backups, you know, we do our post-draft analysis where we do like the steals and the reach and our, and our um, uh, what are undrafted free agents, our honorable mentions, so to speak. So what what did you have there for, for any other ones that, you know, were on your list that didn't get Quick drafted? Quick rundown of the ones I'm looking at here. I was going to do, at the end, it was either going to be Orca or The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue from 1974, Ooh. where... Um, uh, sonic pesticide is being used to eradicate some pests throughout England and it ends up raising the dead. So there's a real pesticide version mm-hmm. there. I was also thinking about doing um, uh, The Long Weekend. It's an Australian movie, another metaphysical movie about an asshole and his girlfriend on a camping trip. And simply because this guy is so abhorrent and such a, a, a louse, a louse and, and is like you know polluting the environment around him and shooting dead animals and simply because he's such a douche nature decides it's had enough of him and and just wipes him out for no reason other than you know it it didn't like him so that's a fun (laughs) movie um there's also wonderful a recent one i i tend to go as you've seen for the 70s stuff but there have been some good recent ones there was this movie the beach house i think it's on shutter right now definitely Uh worth watch oh. um sort of like cabin fever set uh, mm. on, in a beach house in the middle of uh, you know a vacation spot where off season so there's not a lot of people around and another weird cabin fever kind of thing happens a, na- a natural occurrence so that was going to be on there i almost thought of doing the movie version of the man thing the marvel comics thing which is another movie about native americans in louisiana this time who are you know there, an oil company, I think, is stealing their land as well, or drilling on the on a sacred location. So Man Thing rises up, and it's not a great movie, but I mm. I adore Man Thing, the comic and the character. So yeah. I give the movie a little extra credit. And the last one I was thinking about gotcha. doing was a real dark horse because I figured nobody would possibly pick Impulse from 1984. With um, most people, I haven't even heard of Impulse. Yeah, I don't. I'm not. I, familiar. I, I, I have it's, um, Tim Matheson yeah. from Animal House. Uh, Meg Tilly, and it's a movie about a small town, sort of like a Grover's Corners, our town kind of town, a dairy, a dairy town, where the people mm-hmm. and the citizens start losing their impulse control. Uh, they can't mm. censor themselves. And it develops slowly. And by the end, it's like George Romero's The Crazies, where everyone has just lost it, and they're doing whatever they want. And the reason oh, behind nice. it is, I won't spoil it, but there's an 
a heavy duty ecological reason behind it. And it's, um, it's, it's a, a quieter version of the crazies, but some of the scenes in it are extremely creepy. It's held up since I saw it in the theaters in 84. Uh, definitely worth, worth checking oh. out. Awesome. That's awesome. Uh, Nick, did you have any honorable mentions? Um, yeah, I guess so. A couple. Um, one again, probably not ego horror, but it was I was on the fence and I was struggling to pick uh, even five. So uh, antiviral, which is Brandon Cronenberg's first movie. Um, it's uh, yeah, I, don't, I guess it's not ego horror really, but it is. Um, it's about uh, it's about a society where um, where a company essentially um, sells people um, diseases that celebrities have had, their favorite celebrities. Um, and you, it's like, it's encoded, so it can't be like, it's copy protected and you buy your favorite celebrities, whatever disease they just had, and (laughs) you give it to yourself. Um, which I mean, we live in a world where people buy people's bathwater and stuff. So it's not like that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and, and it, I, you know, you can totally see, like, you watch that movie and you're like, oh, well, clearly he's a Cronenberg. Um, that, so <laughs> it's fun. Um, I, I actually still have not seen Possessor, Brandon Cronenberg's second movie. Um, mm. But if Antiviral is anything to go by, and I really do like Antiviral, it's good. Um, I'm excited to see that. So that was one. Um, the other one, I would not ever seriously put it on this list, but I do want to say The Happening Sure. Gets a bad rap. Yeah. It's not. I mean, it, it's a terrible movie. It, it deservedly gets a bad rap. However, um, it's funny because the eco horror element of it is like it could have been anything. The part that excites me about that movie is the premise of people like suddenly killing themselves, like on mass. Um, mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. scary. The fact that it happened to be an eco horror um, is like, probably the part that most people hate about it. Um, but. Uh, because it is an eco horror that could have been on this list and like oh, could have oh my god that that that's yeah. that would have been a ballsy choice <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I told Brantley before we did this when when he told me uh, you'd picked uh, eco horror I was like oh man I'm not that familiar with that subgenre I'm just gonna pick the happening five times <laughs> <laughs> five times that's good <laughs> I was working at a movie theater when that movie came out and they would do screenings at midnight. And so I wound up seeing the happening twice on opening day, which is my least proud oh, movie going moment. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the happening. Uh, um, and finally, not a horror movie, but one that I really remember very fondly is local hero um, comedy. Um, and like a really touching story, um, but definitely an eco movie. So throwing it out there, even though it doesn't Excellent. belong on this list. Gotcha. How about gotcha. you? Well, okay, so I had I had kind of three in the fifth round that I was like between before I picked Piranha, and one of them was um, the stuff actually, which is both eco horror and this kind of commentary on like consumption and you know that that sort of thing, materialistic, you know. But um, because if I'm remembering correctly, and it's been a little bit, but the stuff is just pumping, it's just coming out of the ground, right? Like, this company has just, like, been able to start, like, you know, taking it and putting it into their their food and marketing it and selling it, basically. But it's basically just this goo that is just oozing out of the ground that then just changes people as they eat it and gets them to conform and everything. So, so that was one that I was thinking of, but it, you know, it's one I saw 
um you know a little later in life so it didn't have as much of a like a sweet spot with me as like something like a piranha did and um and then the other one is a more recent film which is um snowpiercer which you know it's it's again it's you know climate change has devastated you know earth the few surviving remaining people are living on this train i don't know how many people would classify it as horror i mean i found many aspects of it very horrific so you know i would but that was one of the other ones that i was kind of between there in that in that final round um that i'll mention uh, i should actually recap our draft so uh our guest mr matthew chernov uh, in the first round, you took Prophecy. In the second, you took Day of the Animals. In the third round, you took Nightwing. In the fourth round, you took King Kong from 1976. And in the fifth round, uh, you took Orca. Uh, Nick, in the first round, you took The Bay. Uh, in the second round, you took The Last Winter. In the third, you took The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. In the fourth, you took 28 Days Later. And in the fifth, you took The Host. Um, I took Ticks in the first round. Deep Blue Sea in the second. Humanoids from the Deep in the third arachnophobia from the in the fourth and uh piranha in the fifth round um we've gone through our undrafted free agents i don't know if there's really any reaches or steals i honestly think this is a heck of a great draft all around by everybody i mean if there's maybe a reach i will say my number one overall selection of ticks because i don't even know if you guys had that anywhere on your lists um maybe i could have gotten that like later but uh anyway um this has been an absolute blast um i can't thank you enough matt for coming on and doing this we we thank you so much um you've been so knowledgeable as i said before (laughs) i can't believe you're taking a couple of knuckleheads like us and giving us this much time to come and do our silly podcast so we really anytime anytime please just let me know um lists horror lists are something i've been writing for variety for several years now um so i love that format and the draft thing i wasn't familiar with it Mm -hmm. until i started listening to the show and now i can see why it's it's pretty fun because you really have to have some some backup choices there because you guys started stealing i suddenly i realized i have to stick totally with the 70s because they're getting all the more modern ones like last winter and and all of that so that was uh, you know super fun to do Oh, excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything you'd like to plug in? Speaking of, by the way, your variety list, I, I love uh, so many of the lists you've put out. Um, the Friday 13th one was great. I know you've talked on other pods about people's like reaction to oh, they it. Kept brutal. I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, what? come on. Like, it's all opinion. It's all like, you know, I've had people anyway, it's just, it's crazy. Email, people I've take had people it so email seriously. email my editor to tell them that I should be fired. And I'm just oh, a freelancer. <laughs> they can't fire me. They can maybe, uh, but yeah, some people take it. If you if you don't put Friday the Thirteenth Part Three exactly where they think it belongs, then you know you've you've really uh, you screwed up. You you've made an enemy for life, I guess. I have to yeah. say, I I think this is so interesting, and I don't mean this as a slight at all because I I really enjoy Friday the Thirteenth series. But now that social media is bigger, and I'm like just reading. Um, more direct opinions from people and not movie critics. Friday the Thirteenth mm. fans probably have to be some of the most rabid fan base bases, in the, and I mean that in a good way, like very passionate, very passionate. But I have not mm-hmm. seen that level of passion, I don't think, on any other horror movie, um, to anywhere near that degree. I mean, I'm stunned at how popular. Not that they're bad. I'm just stunned at how popular those movies are. Um. And how many people 
would choose Friday the 13th over Halloween every day of the week. It's I true. find it, it very it, interesting. Yeah. yeah, I didn't get nearly the amount of grief for my Halloween ranking that I did when Halloween Kills came out. Um, people did not mm. take that that seriously. My Godzilla ranking, where I did every Godzilla movie and and uh, from t- from best to worst, that didn't piss people off enough. In fact, I'm surprised now that I think about it, the Godzilla movies. I'm surprised none of us picked Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, which is like the oh, eco Godzilla just... movie. That's the one. <laughs> uh, I put that mm-hmm. pretty high on my list. Surprising, <laughs> I think I put it as number ten. And if anybody complained about the list, it was the, you know that I must have been stoned to put. Godzilla versus Hedorah that high, but that movie is a is like mm-hmm. a cartoon come to life. That thing is fin- fantastic. But the Friday fans, you're right, take it really seriously for 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 a series of movies that are basically very very simple and and very repetitive. You would think that they're each one is like this you know piece of gold that is just like you know has these rare mm-hmm. qualities to it. They're mostly interchangeable, give or take a couple here and there. And some, uh, I love the series, but maybe not taking a, that that hardcore is, is pretty scary. Yeah, absolutely. Did you get much pushback on your Stephen King one? Because you did kind of like a best yeah, and a worst. We don't really do uh, worst King anymore. That was an, um, a re, uh, sort of a revision of an older list. So they, yeah. they've kind of moved away from doing the worst. People, it seems like film twitter and film social media have have moved away from the idea of doing worst of lists that's somehow punching down or something i don't know um Hmm. so so i didn't hear too much grief from from the stephen king one um maybe a few people thought that uh one of the editors thought i put creep show too high which is crazy because obviously you haven't seen creep show (laughs) if you think it's too high on my list it's it's a fantastic movie yeah. Well, and I know it has a special place in your heart, too, because you went and saw the screening and you had won the costume contest uh, in that theater in Rhode that Island. That was incredible. It was, a, um, it was a preview screening of Creepshow months before mm. it ever opened where they were doing advanced looks up and down the East Coast and Romero and King were making surprise appearances at screenings of it to drum up oh, nice. publicity. But word leaked in my town that they were coming they wasn't supposed to come out so suddenly the mayor was there uh news crews were there it be- it blew up into an event and they did a costume contest where you the first 50 people in costume dressed as your favorite creep could get in for free and you would win a bunch of prizes that romero and king were gonna pick the best costume so i went with my stepdad we dressed up in costume we got in for free because we were one of the first 50 and then they they called us up in front of the stage, the 10 of us that they picked seemingly at random, and King and Romero picked me as the best costume. And uh, to get a, a bear hug from George Romero at the preview screening of Creepshow was like, yeah. I mean, that's dream come true level. That's one of those memories. That, and so, so I, yeah, I have the news footage of being on the news that night. I put that up on, on Twitter, I think. Yeah. And it's, it's just a memory I'll never forget. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I'm sorry, I kind of jumped in talking about your variety list, but if there, what else would you like to, to oh, plug? The only or, other or thing, how can people um, find you? I guess I would plug is the the Western podcast. It's called How the West Was Cast. Mm. It's the westerns aren't nearly as popular as horror, so you know I I don't blame you if if people don't listen to the western movies. It's a very niche genre these days. Uh, 
And we, we mm. talk a lot about classic Westerns rather than the new Westerns. Our, our sweet spot is like 1950s Hollywood Westerns, but we cover all different ones as well. Mm. And so if anybody likes Westerns, in addition to horror, we actually have a horror Western episode on there where we talk about our, our top horror Westerns. So please, um, you know, we'd be happy to have uh, any listeners to How the West Was Cast. It's, it's on every platform. Yeah, and I highly recommend it. I mean, if you've loved listening to to Matt on this episode and his like fantastic knowledge of films, him and his co-host, who is a film professor, I mean, just unbelievably fantastic discussions about the the different topics that they cover uh, every episode. I mean, it's it's really informative and amazing. I, I love the podcast. Thank I think you it's so wonderful. much. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you again so much for joining us. Um, I again, I can't thank you enough. We've taken up so much of your time, and you've been so yeah. kind. So no, Brantley summed it up perfectly, and I can't add more, unfortunately, because I I wish I could. It was like this has been such a pleasure. I can't even begin to tell you. Like I was nervous about this because I am not as knowledgeable on this subject, but uh, thank you for making it so fun. Yes, <laughs> my pleasure. Yes, my pleasure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, Tune in next time when we will be drafting kaiju films. All right, everybody. See you next time. The song you heard in this episode is You Are a Monster by Monroeville Music Center. It's being used under a CCBY Creative Commons license and was accessed from freemusicarchive.org. If you'd like to hear more of Monroeville Music Center, You can find them on Bandcamp, their Facebook page, YouTube, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, Discogs, iHeartRadio, and Deezer. And hey, if you want to reach out and communicate with us, please send an email to horrordraftspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at horrordrafts, all one word. We'd love to hear any questions you have for us, suggestions for topics to draft, or ideas for guests, especially if you can put us in touch with them. Thanks everyone, and we hope to hear from you soon.